Happy Halloween, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 74. To celebrate Halloween this month, what we've done here on Horror Movie Podcast is we've brought you in-depth feature reviews and analysis of the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and we attempted to do it Horror Movie Podcast style. And so this is our final installment part five of this and tonight we're going to be briefly discussing freddy versus jason from 2003 also briefly discussing the documentary never sleep again the elm street legacy from 2010 and we'll bring you an in-depth review of a nightmare on elm street the remake from 2010 and we're also going to discuss some listener feedback and maybe some campfire tales Now, we usually don't reveal spoilers on this podcast, but just telling you up front, we will be spoiling the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, so everything is fair game. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker, from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh. Jay, Mm -hmm. why are you screaming? I haven't even cut you yet. You're really good at those. I have to commend you. I've enjoyed all of your greetings except for the one. But um, <laughs> well, I was going to go with your mouth says no, but your body says yes. But I think well, it appre- might be inappropriate. <laughs> I appreciate your discretion. So Dr. Walking Dead is not here tonight. He is our fourth co-host and he has not been here for these episodes but i am heartbroken i just want to say he was in our town today at the local college at the local university giving a horror related presentation and i wanted to go so bad but i couldn't get out of work i could have actually met him in person i've never even met him josh and i didn't get to go i could i never heard your guys's backstory and did you mention that even during your uh, hmp origin story because i thought you guys knew each other when i met kyle i was the host of the songwriting podcast and my co-host on there was a friend that i knew from my church missionary service his name was grant adams and he knew kyle the professor you know because his i i think his wife attended down there at southern utah university and he said you've got to get this guy on your podcast he's a zombie expert And so I reached out to Kyle and he agreed and we brought him in on Horror Palace. He was on like the Horror Palace special when we reviewed, like we did the best horror films of the 80s and 90s. And he was also on Horror Metropolis. Yes, before that though. Yeah, even considering the sequels podcast. Yeah, so. He covered the Romero films back then. Yep. Yeah, and I couldn't believe that he was actually willing to be a a full-time host, you know, as he's available on this podcast. So I felt really lucky because... I don't know if everybody realizes this, but he's been in Wired magazine. Uh, uh-huh. For example, he's been quoted there. He was on the recent uh, Radio West episode, which I listened to, which is incredible. It's a great podcast if you haven't heard it. It's one of Kyle's best. In fact, it's an hour long. We'll have it linked in the show notes for this episode. And just so everybody knows, I actually prepared a little clip. I meant, I meant to prepare a different clip because I played this the other night on Movie Podcast Weekly. And I ran out of time to prepare a secondary clip. So sorry for the rerun for the crossover listeners, but let me just play this clip real fast. This is Kyle in this Radio West interview, and he is discussing and describing real zombies. The original real zombies are basically lobotomized. Yeah. So they would, uh, certain 
Bokors, which are kind of renegade uh, voodoo practitioners, would use uh, tetrodotoxin from local puffer fish and maybe some poison from frogs and different herbs and, and, and create what they called the coupe poudre, uh, this kind of white powder that would render its victim for all intents and purposes, purposes dead. Yeah. And they would look dead and they wouldn't have a pulse and they wouldn't breathe. And so being a tropical country, these people would be buried almost instantly. And then in the night, uh, the folks would come and dig them up. And by that point, the poor victim has suffered substantial brain damage from loss of oxygen and the, the poisoning itself and basically lost all their upper-level brain capacity so they could be sold on a different part of the island to simply work in the sugarcane fields forever. <laughs> That's the scariest thing oh. I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I mean, that is so upsetting. So anyway, it's it's one of his best interviews. I've really enjoyed him on this, and um, so I highly recommend it. It's great Halloween listening for zombie fans. It'll be linked in the show notes, and he's also, of course, in the documentary called Doc of the Dead from 2014. I also don't know if we mentioned this on the show already, but he was on Huffington Post Live recently, and he wore his horror movie podcast shirt on that appearance, which was cool. <laughs> nice. Now, Josh, is that something we can view? Is it a... Like a video? I don't know if it um, if they archive that, but it was you know live streaming, so I don't know if there's a a video you can download now that it's over. But we'll have to ask Kyle. Oh, I love it. Okay, so that sounds good. And of course, uh, Kyle has two books. Just so people know out there, he, he has um, American Zombie Gothic was his first book, and then the second one is like How Zombies Conquered Pop Culture. I own it. I just don't have it right beside me. So. Anyway, Kyle Bishop, everybody. Wish you were uh-huh. here. <laughs> yep. So, so Dave, you saw, as we were getting on to podcast, you saw something come through on Twitter that was pretty intriguing. It, it is, and I, I, it's spooky, too. Uh, it <laughs> was posted by uh, Dino. Now, at the time, it was five minutes old. And, you know, we've been sitting here talking for a little bit. So now it's 13 minutes ago. Dino posted... Um, to um, Horror Movie Podcast, to myself and to Josh on Twitter. Your nightmare is almost over. Thanks for bringing us another excellent franchise review. Somehow, I don't know how, but he seems to be in tune with uh, the recording. Yeah, um, all the I, time. All the time, yeah. I know we've mentioned it in passing a few times. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was a little spooky, and I just saw it moments before Jay started to to. to record yeah 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 because tonight is wednesday night the 28th of october two days before this releases and since we are just two days before this releases and i have a feeling this is going to be a long episode i'm just going to warn people right now there's not going to be much editing on this puppy i'm just going to put it up (laughs) it's going to be really rough so if it if it seems turbulent and bumpy this week you know i'm sorry about that so anyway, so Josh, before we jump into this, I am dying to know because um, unfortunately you were not able to join us on our previous episode. We missed you dearly, of course. And um, I wanted to hear just some of your thoughts, some of your overview about uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and maybe even Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Let's hear it. Honestly, I liked them way more than I thought I was going to. Um <laughs> Now, I, I hated the dream child. I don't know if you guys remember that. And I, I was—I got that sense from you. 
And I wasn't <laughs> fond of I wasn't fond of the film before that, The Dream Master. Um but Freddy's Dead, taken in context of after the television series at kind of the height of Freddy's popularity with him, you know, wearing sunglasses around and I don't know, was he on ever on the Pizza Hut pizza boxes? He seems like he should have been. He was all over MTV, you know, and Fat Boys music videos and and Dawkins music videos and it just felt like a, the right movie for that era. Like, even though I don't love Freddy's dead and it's ridiculous in a lot of ways, I kind of admire the John Waters influence of that film. <laughs> it's kind of great in that way. Wow. You know, like, uh, yeah, I never expected this from you. And by the way, just side note, I believe the pizza association you're thinking of is Domino's pizza. The Noid. remember avoid annoyed. Remember oh yeah. That? Oh, yeah. And so what you're saying, um, Freddy is kind of the Noid of horror cinema? <laughs> yeah, yes. I would like to avoid Noid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm with you, Josh. I, you, we both have said it, and I'll say it here publicly. I want to apologize to all the Fred heads out there because I actually did enjoy myself more than I ever anticipated um, this month when we've been watching these films. So, but... Having said that, I almost quit horror movie podcast this month because of this franchise. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you all. Go ahead, Josh. Carry on. No, so I would give Freddy's Dead the final nightmare on its own merits in the weird world that it exists. I think I'd give it a 4.5 and call it a low priority rental. Um, and then <laughs> Wes Craven's new nightmare I liked quite a bit. Yes. I was surprised how much I enjoyed that. I've only heard bad things about it. And I've always talked trash about it, and I've seen parts of it, but it turns out the parts I've seen were kind of in that finale portion, largely, which I do dislike. I don't like the whole kind of underground dream world finale moments of the film. That I really like all the postmodern stuff in there. Now, you know, I mentioned during our Scream franchise review that this may have been a precursor to Scream, and I don't think that's totally the truth. I mean, you know, this film is just totally self-referential. And we talked about, you know, Freddie for a long time kind of been making these pop cultural references in the way a clerks might, but he's not really taking the critique of cinema to the next level that we saw in scream. And I would say that although this does examine this particular franchise, it doesn't do what scream does either. But having said that, I also enjoyed it for what it was. I think again, Freddie is the least successful part of that film. Um, whenever Freddy's on screen now, I know it's not technically Freddy. It's like an ancient demon or something. His appearances in the film aren't that great. When it's just a claw, I kind of like that. When it's all of the stuff with Heather Longenkamp, I I like that. And uh, I don't know. I thought it was kind of a fun, interesting movie. That one I would give a six and call it a solid rental. Hmm. Okay. okay. Not too far. Now, as just out of curiosity, one thing I, w- I was interested in your opinion of uh, your uh, uh, what you thought of uh, Heather Langenkamp this time around. I thought she did a better job in this one than she had in the previous two that she was in. Absolutely, I think she's gotten marginally better in each film, and this mm-hmm. was her best and gorgeous in this film. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. new nightmare. Never knew. Right, <laughs> <laughs> Josh is like, I'm a man with blinders on these days. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But no, that's good. So a new nightmare, six out of 10 solid rental. Okay. Well, that's interesting. 
Um, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself because you did watch those, right? I mean, you. Yeah, I was totally prepared to attend that podcast recording, but I just um, my personal life was in a in a tailspin due to this. I'm trying to build an art house theater in my in the small town that I live in, (laughs) and it's an uphill battle. And one of our big events was last week. Um, it was a huge event because we'd done several other events for the last six months, but they, the risk was fairly low and the risk last week was extremely high. Um, and so it was just a lot of stress and I'm not, even though I've done a lot of things, event management is not one of those things. And then event management is really hard. Yeah. So anyone who does that for their profession, hats off to you. It's very difficult. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in other words, hell broke open. On your head last Wednesday. Absolutely. (laughs) Poor Josh. Well, we're glad you're here. And you're just in time to actually revisit a film that we've talked about before. And that is Freddy vs. Jason from 2003. Warn your friends. Warn everyone. Welcome to my Okay, guys, now, the thing is, I think a lot of people are wondering, okay, well, why are they only doing a brief review of this? And if you are wondering that, then just want to remind you that back in episode 46 of Horror Movie Podcast, when we were reviewing the Friday the 13th franchise, we actually addressed it more in depth on that show. We had Willis Wheeler and Chris Robo on as guests. So we have reviewed it before. Now, just I'm just putting this out there. I don't know how you and you two feel about this, but it seems to me it feels a lot more like Freddy's movie than Jason's movie. And had we reviewed this franchise first before Friday the 13th, then of course we would have done the, the lengthier review there. So, I mean, but I, I, fe- I just felt like we couldn't totally ignore it and not even mention it at all. So we're just going to kind of like do a brief little mini discussion. Does that sound okay to you guys? Sure. Uh, afraid not. No, I will refuse to ever discuss this movie. Again. <laughs> <laughs> can you, can you, can after that, can you just get the audio from the previous one and play it? <laughs> I, I actually considered that, like actually putting it in. That's what I was thinking. Right yeah, here. And, and then just pretend like, hey, Willis, how did you get on this show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, honestly, if you're a listener of this franchise review and you haven't heard the Friday the 13th franchise review, you're going to like it. You should check out that one and our Halloween franchise review, our Scream right. franchise review. So mm-hmm. it's all there for the listening. That's right. It is. And, um, I actually, um, I have, to do us all a favor, I've carried over, I have our ratings from that night, which I can reveal at the end of this little discussion here, if you wish, which is uh, kind of interesting <laughs> to look at them, especially reflecting on your comments just now, Josh, because your rating is, um, I think, higher than maybe you remember. <laughs> look, it's not a terrible movie. No, uh, yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I mean, my... I've given I've rated these movies higher than I had anticipated I would mm-hmm. across the board. 
Um, and so what I've discovered is they are highly watchable for the most part, but I've also discovered that I really do not want to revisit any of them anytime soon. <laughs> and um, oh. this is definitely one that is a one-time watch for me. And I've already seen it like three times. <laughs> and that's been two times too many at least yes so for those who don't know i mean uh of course they uh teamed up or not not exactly teamed up actually they are in a versus kind of adversarial role where you got freddy krueger versus jason Voorhees, and they're terrorizing uh this teenage population again because freddy um it's been like 10 years. Help me out with this, you guys, if I'm wrong on this. It's been about like 10 years, something like that. And they want to, the people in the town want to keep Freddie gone, but he has a plan to get back to Elm Street. And so, in order to do that, he resurrects or brings back Jason Voorhees uh-huh. and sends him in. You know, at first, he kind of commissions him. But then it ends so it's up. So it's a new power of Freddy the, to bring the dead back to life. <laughs> right, right. Although Jason is always just kind of dead. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's never completely dead. <laughs> exactly. That's right. And, uh, you know, the thing is, they start battling each other, of course, as you might imagine. And uh-huh. it has um, a really freaking dumb ending, I think. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but, but it's not a surprising ending, especially given what we've seen. And, you know, these previous installments, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they start now having, re- you know, reviewed all these films sometimes for the first time. I like how much it sticks to the core mythology compared to a lot of these sequels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's something that has going for it. We actually did get one listener comment on this. Um, you know, we're going to be reading through our listener comments during this episode, but not necessarily for this film. Um, due to the fact that we're recording this before it posts. Um, and so I, I just have one comment here about Freddy versus Jason. I thought I could read really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kitsy on the message boards was talking with um, Sal, I believe it was, about the idea that Freddy's biggest fear is that he'll be forgotten. And Kitsy says, I like the fact that Freddie was so concerned with people forgetting about him and that he used Jason to make them remember. I thought it was an interesting touch and made sense in the Freddie world, not just the Jason world. However, it was one that I wish they would have pursued more in the franchise with more clarity. That and the Elm Street children angle, too. I like the whole the sins of the parents will be visited on the children. It is more coherent than the flaming dog urine anyway. Plus, it worked, <laughs> it worked in the tragic family component into the storyline which all the great franchises have. Michael and his sister cousin, Jason and his mother, Freddie and his bloodlust for children and the parents that killed him. That element alone is so scary and personal to Freddie's motives. Mm. I think it's for sure after listening to the latest. In, oh, sorry. No, I'm just, I was no, just. Yeah, that's that. The last comment was about uh, your photogenic uh, colon. So I'll just <laughs> skip that <Okay>. one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and it is photogenic, yes. Yes. <laughs> One of my many photogenic parts, in fact. Are you able to post a picture? Could you one post of your that one of your most photogenic parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done. Well played. I like that. No, I used to have the picture and then um well I I used that picture in a class. Well, I'll save it for another time. <laughs> You used that picture in a class. I, I did. I was actually um at one time I was actually a pretty um a, a fairly appreciated teacher of sorts 
And then I use that in a class as like an object lesson and for humor purposes. And it crashed and burned badly. So that was the end of that teaching. (laughs) Job? You were fired? No, well, it wasn't a, a job per se, but... Um, pe- pe- people, right. people, people didn't take the inside of your colon quite as lightly as you thought they would. Yeah, yeah, they didn't think it was funny, as, as um, some of the listeners have on this podcast. So maybe this is the place. <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe we need to get this up in the artwork, Josh. Yeah, Just, that's not. I guess that was your stab at prop comedy. Is that what it was? <laughs> <laughs> that's right, or proctology, one or the other. Um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Because you said prop comedy. I'm like, okay, there's a word that fits this situation really well that's similar to that. Oh, proctology. And you came up with it immediately. Oh, it's amazing. Okay. Okay, anything else on this? Because um, I'm already tired of Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> no, I see think previous com- Yeah, see previous, exactly. Yeah. yeah, episode 46 of Horror Movie Podcast. And I'll tell you right now, Josh, do you remember the neighborhood that you were in? On your ratings, just for fun, do you remember what you might have rated this? Uh, maybe a five. Yep, yep, that's exactly what you said. You called it a rental. What about you, Doctor Shock? Do you remember what you said? I think I was. I think it was around the same, wasn't I? Like right in the middle of a five. <laughs> exactly five and a rental. And Chris Robo called it a five and a rental. Okay, and uh, for some reason, nobody knows why. Willis Wheeler. <laughs> Gave Freddy versus Jason a 10 out of 10. <laughs> and he said, buy it. So it seems to me that I was the only one who gave it an avoid. I gave it a four out of 10 and said, avoid Freddy versus Jason because I'm a big jerk. Okay. Well, that was fun. All right. So let's put at this point. Let's move right along into our feature review of A Nightmare on Elm Street from 2010. I'm having these dreams. And there's this man. And he's burnt. I love actually the IMDb description, so I'm just going to read that because essentially this is a remake of the first film. Right. But the IMDb description says the specter of a dead child rapist haunts the children of the parents who murdered him, stalking and killing them in their dreams. I like that the specter of a dead child rapist haunts (laughs) the children. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's a great description of Freddy Krueger. And you know, you know, there's been the discussion on the message boards: is he a rapist? Is he a killer? We've talked about that a little bit before. I mean, he's basically mm-hmm. both. And depending on who you talk to, you know, the initial intention had been that he was a rapist, but he left that out due to some real life events that were happening at the time. Um, but that was always Craven's intention, and they kind of bring it back in full force in this remake. And honestly, I think that is one of the strongest elements of the remake. And I know that this is not a beloved film, but I have to say. They do a lot of things right. Unfortunately, yes. they do a lot of things wrong, too. Uh, it's true. It's true. And I actually, I am very, I am in the camp of this, uh, of the defenders of this film. I actually am very fond of this, um, you know, compared to a lot of the other ones. In fact, in many ways, I would even say, and I'm not the guy who usually says stuff like this, okay? Just putting it out there, but I I think in many ways this outdoes the original 
<laughs> in, in, in its approach. You know, when we did the Friday the 13th franchise, there's been so much hatred for Platinum Dunes over the years. I think largely just because people hate Michael Bay. But actually going back and rewatching these films, I've been really impressed with the care and detail they put into these remakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one has problems for me. I think what it misses is the magic of the first film. But in terms of just the writing and construction, they do a much better job than most of the films in this franchise of telling the specifics of the story and of these characters, mostly the Freddy character. I think the kids are a little weaker here, but the Freddy character is a lot stronger. And I love finally just getting to clearly see the backstory within this one self-contained film. Yes. Uh, That part was awesome. And, you know, we'll get to that a little bit more, but I just think the strengths of this film have a lot to do with the writing. Um, I think I might've said this when we did the Friday, the uh, Friday the 13th franchise overview as well, but it's weird with these remakes because every measurable element of the filmmaking is better, right? Like the acting's better, the writing's better, the cinematography's better. All of the, you know, all of those things are stronger in terms of craft, but there's still some a little bit of magic missing. There's there's a little bit of that X factor. <laughs> I hate to say that phrase, but well, there's a little bit of charm that's missing from these remakes. And I think it, I think that 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 very thing that you're speaking of, that intangible <laughs> thing that's hard to categorize, I think that has to do with the '80s. Um, that 80s feeling. I don't know what else to call that. Well, Dr. Shock, what is that called? The 80s... Um, oh, boy. Uh, there's, um, there's something... Are you trying to get someone else to say nostalgia so that you don't have to, Jason? <laughs> no, because I don't I don't think that, that that word is accurate in this sense because I'm not referring to... Vibe? Like the 80s kitsch? vibe? Is that what you're going to? Um, Yeah, maybe, yeah, like even... Yeah, some sort of like, uh, it's like on a certain level, a certain vibration, a certain, um, there is a certain flavor to it. Yeah, now uh-huh. now I would say 80s nostalgia, but that, that refers more to our fond feelings of that era back then. But I'm talking about the era in its present day when you were there living it. Um, it there was still this... this happy feeling to it the best the the thing that captures that the best for me honestly this sounds really weird but is that um that grocery store slasher film intruder yeah that was right towards the end yeah that was 89 Yeah. yeah but but it still it captures that and um you know i i it's tangible to me you know i just i just absolutely love it or like you know even motel hell has a, a really strong dose of that for me when I see it. Yeah. This so. is not just the kitsch though, that I'm referring to. Like this is beyond eighties. Um, I'm talking about in the, in the roots of the filmmaking, I'm talking about the way the shots are framed and maybe that all, maybe that all harkens back to it too. It's like when you watch a John Carpenter film, you feel the lighting and the framing and that all feels like a place and a time. And that's all true. But even just in the use of the dream world, this film does not do it nearly as effectively as many of the films that came before it. I think what this film gets really right is the origin story, Mm -hmm. the reality of, of trying to stay awake. Yeah. You know, as someone who suffers from 
um, needing to stay awake for work a lot, like uh, sleep <laughs> deprivation. I'm sure, Jay, you can relate to this as well. Probably Dave, too. Oh, All yeah. of us are people that are awake a lot more than we should be. Yeah. For our yeah. This movie feels like trying to stay awake way more than the first film, way more than any I, I of the agree. films. When I watch this, I'm like, oh, this is the feeling. This is the way I feel when I'm like nodding out, trying to stay awake right. when I need to be working or doing something else, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I agree with a lot of things you just said there, Josh. Like, for example, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I said all along, okay, I'm going to try not to contradict myself. So I said all along that I don't like being in the dream world in these movies. That's when my like eyes would roll back into my head and I'd kind of glaze over because I like horror films set in reality. And that's just a personal preference. But when we got to like um, three and four, I mean, even five, I'll say, the dream worlds were very just vibrant and imaginative. And so it was at least something interesting to watch. Like it was visually engaging and stimulating, even though I still don't love not being in reality. Well, one problem this film really has, and I think maybe it's Achilles heel, is that its dream sequences are very bland and tepid and under, I mean, they're just really underdeveloped. Yeah, like even the bathtub sequence, which you know is one of the classic ones. They they use the cool shot, but they don't do the kind of horrifying moment of her being sucked underwater. You know, and I don't know. Like, yeah, they do this a couple times in the movie where it's good. Like I think the snow in the bedroom is really strong. Right. They do a couple of really great transitions, but I just want more of that. And this film didn't have. And also just the deaths of like Tina and Johnny Depp. Like we don't have those kinds of like really amazing looking moments that feel otherworldly, you know? And, you know, I've mentioned the Foo Fighters thing. I love the look of Nancy walking through and be like, Glenn, like (laughs) wake me up. Like all that's, I I just think it's very evocative of kind of dream, like real dream life. Mm -hmm. And there's not anything of that. This is, you know, this just doesn't have that element going for it. Yeah. I, I would totally agree with that. And I, I will say, too, like, I remember the first time I saw this, when the film opens, and honestly, within the first 15, 20 minutes of this, I, I am so, like, floored and just loving it. Like, there's something about the ambience of the film, the look of the film. Uh, I like the characters. I like what's going on. I mean, we see Freddy really fast, pretty upfront in this, and it's it's creepy. I mean, I think he's actually kind of creepy in this. I'll talk about my problems with him in a minute, but but the first few minutes are just tremendous that way. And then this thing hits a weird lag, like about the 20 minute mark until you get to like, I don't know, until the last like half hour of the film, maybe last 20 minutes, like the middle of this thing is just limp. So for me, I mean, does anybody else feel like that has problems there through the middle? Uh, I I didn't have that issue. I think for me, it was just Freddy wasn't working for me, honestly. Um, And again, that's a problem I've had throughout. I just, you know, without that magical dream imagery, it just becomes a very nuts and bolts story. And that and it's almost procedural in a way. And I like procedurals. But so so it kept my attention. But it just I would just kept waiting, waiting, waiting for something kind of otherworldly to happen. But would you say that the Freddy thing has to do with um 
does it have to do with the performance by Jackie Earl Haley or where does that your problem come in with his Freddie? Uh, I mean, I've never really loved Freddie, but I don't, I like him less. And I, okay. and I like the idea of him playing Freddie. I don't know if you guys have seen the film little children. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. He was excellent. He was excellent in that movie. Yeah, and that's so a I'm just, creepy I, movie. I want to briefly spoil little children. If you haven't seen it, it's not a major spoiler. It's just one of the plot elements is that Jackie Earl Haley plays a child molester in that film. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably had a lot to do with him being cast in this film (laughs) Um, because he, you know, is so creepy in that performance. And he just doesn't, even though he's great in the scenes where he's human here, um, he's still not quite as creepy as he is in little children. And, um, and so that was, a disappointment because I kept waiting for that. And then I think his Freddy scenes, I understand that they were going for a more realistic burn victim kind of look than maybe we got with Freddy Mm Krueger. But I think the downside of that is his face was less expressive. And so it did, it just felt more like a mask. It didn't feel, I couldn't feel emotion through it. And I just wanted to sense a little bit more of his creepy vibe. I guess. See, see, I... It just felt blank to me. I actually loved everything about his Freddy, and I loved him as Freddy, except for his voice. I was just... I'm so used to Robert England's performance by now, you know, that that this... That his voice is just really... Uh, what's the word? It's, it's Watchman-like? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's his same voice from Watchman, basically. It, it really is, but, you know, and of course... Yeah, I mean, there is that. That may be part of what bothers me, but it also seems really tame compared to how, like, I don't know, because I I like the fact that, I mean, they even had, one thing I appreciate, sorry about all these false starts, one thing I appreciated that they did is they tried to still stay faithful to what Freddy is, and he is kind of a, a wisecracker, and sometimes this guy makes little jokes but they're not super cheesy things they're just little tiny quips and and i actually had kind of a respect for that i'm like okay at least they're not like arnold schwarzenegger one-liners in here you know so i like that i like the look of him i did feel like he was more realistic i actually thought he was kind of creepy i just wish his voice were um i don't know his voice there's something about his voice quality it just was not menacing enough to be freddy for me what do you say doc about his freddy I actually liked. I mean, I'm I'm a Jackie Earl Haley fan. I, I even liked him in um, what was a Watchmen, even though you don't really see him. Uh, I thought he was great I, in Watchmen. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought his performance in that was really strong. Um, and interestingly enough, I know that the the, the trivia is he almost play, he almost had the Johnny Depp role in the first Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, he was the <laughs> one who was trying out for it, and I think Johnny Depp was his friend who just sort of went along with him or something. At least that's what. That's how uh, I guess the legend is now. Whether it's the exact you know truth or it's just uh, you know sort of been built upon over time, I can't say. Uh, but no, I, I thought he was a great choice to play Freddy, and I didn't have a problem with him at all. I mean, even in that uh, early on in that one scene, one of the things that always sticks out for me is after he's taken out one the first victim, you know, he makes that comment that there's still a little oxygen left in your brain. Yeah. So we've got some more time to play. Right. I mean, that's <laughs> I, uh, the, the reason that always sticks with me is because one of the things that has always fascinated me is like 
with when when I'd hear you know the, you'd hear about people who were beheaded, how the heads would still continue to look around and yeah. gasp for air for for minutes afterwards because of the fact that there's oxygen in the brain. And it was keeping them alive. Yeah, as, um, as you mentioned in your um, Exorcist Three review today. Yes, by the yes, way. that that's one of the things that um, that the the the, uh, the Gemini killer, the Gemini killer says is that you know I, when I cut the head off, um, I like to hold it up and show it the body. Yeah, you know, and that's creepy. I mean, that, that that's we're getting <laughs> off track with that one with Exorcist Three. That was you know. <laughs> <laughs> really, that that's a very chilling line from that movie. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that was a, a a good line in this movie as well. Yeah, you know, I, I that always that always stuck with me. But I like Jackie O'Haley. You know, I do I too. Didn't find the menacing or aggressive enough, and I didn't really f- feel the skeeviness that I wanted to feel, especially from a guy like him who I know can play it perfectly because mm-hmm. I've seen him do it before. <laughs> I didn't get that in this particular performance. I, I don't know. I, I felt a little bit of the child molester skeeviness in there a little bit, like especially when she was down in his, um, I don't know, his living space and his quarters in that area. Like that, that's a little bit upsetting. But, but speaking of Nancy, the Nancy yeah. character, Rooney Mara, um, I, I just, I just loved her Nancy in this. Oh, I really disliked it. How come was she too like? Indian? Give me a Kate Mara over a over a Rooney Mara. <laughs> <laughs> I love Kate too, but give like... me a Kate Mara all day. No, Rooney. I just thought Rooney. I thought Rooney was just I don't know a little bland in this role. I didn't think she brought much to it. And obviously, this is another situation that I was talking about. Like compared to the first film, compared to Heather. She's incredible in terms of as, as an actress, <laughs> but I just didn't like her take on this character from a modern movie perspective. Yeah, I think the one thing, a problem I think I had with it too, and I, you know, disclosure here, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. That's why I'm not as um, joining quite as much with this is that, that um, just with everything, I don't want to go into it. I didn't get a chance to rewatch the movie, um, but I have seen it before. And I do re- recall that I was not as big a fan of the teenage characters in this one. Mm-hmm. Even if some of the performances were a little better this time around than they were in the original movie, I didn't like them as much. Wow. Yeah, I actually did. I mean, they did look like they were in some kind of like, you know, indie, uh, I don't know, what's the word? Like hipster Abercrombie and Fitch commercial. They were all depressed and so forth. You know, but I, I'm I'm getting used to that, you know, in modern horror films. But like like for example, Kyle Gallner, um, <clears throat> he plays Quentin in this. I mean, that guy, he's he was in the haunting in Connecticut, and he looks like as an individual, and I, I don't mean this disrespectfully, of course, but he the way his eyes look and he kind of has the dark circles under his eyes, he looks like a guy who is haunted. So so having him in this role with his bags under his eyes and dark circles where he can't you mean just, sleep. Just a guy who is always haunted 24 seven type thing. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, as an individual in real life, like the way he looks, he looks like someone who's afflicted with some kind of horror. But in this film, he looks like he fits the bill really well for someone who appears to be sleep deprived. <laughs> and, okay. and I think it's pretty cool, you know, to see him in there. And um, of course this has Clancy Brown. And I always appreciate some Clancy Brown, although Clancy I think Brown, yep. I think he's underused in this film. But um, so, yeah, and and Josh, I think another thing I have like 
you know, if I'm just being honest with everybody, I think one of the the huge disappointments for me, mostly I love the film, but I think that, you know, there are some really spectacular kills, as you mentioned, in the original, in the first one, and they aren't able to, like, do that in this film, and I think it's really surprising that they weren't able to carry it like that. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think it's a huge failure of the film uh, to not deliver on what's most spectacular about the original film. Yeah, like, for example, when um, when the gal, I, I forget the character's name, when, when she's, like, thrown around the room, you know, invisibly, that almost looks like one of those parody moments that bothers me. <laughs> you know how I get mad about things that look like scary movie? Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, it's so, it's almost comical and it really bugs me. Whereas in the other one, they just rolled that room around, you know. And, yeah, and, just and had, she's like dragging, right. her body's like dragging across. And, yeah, and yep, it looks yep. so much, I mean, it looked way better, like a yep. million times better in the original. Yep. yep. So that that's true, but. Okay, so any other thoughts on it's this? Had a little drag me to hell flavor going on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe just a little, but um, uh, yeah, I, my sense of this, it seems like a lot of, a lot of horror fans were kind of hard on this. I think, um, and and well, I, it's for a lot of people, as we're learning, this is a beloved series. It is, you know? but it, it's beloved. It, and if you look at it, Jay, if we look at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Which yeah. I didn't hate. Yeah, it's I can't not say bad. That I hated it. The 2003 with Jessica Biel, right? I mean, yeah, that's yeah. Not... I, I I can't say I didn't hate it. I certainly didn't hate it. It can't touch um, the greatness of the original, but I mean, no. it's not a bad movie. Actually, no. it's it's pretty it's, good. It's not, and in fact, and then and it's interesting. In that one, I liked the 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 victim characters better than I liked the family. Um, you hmm. know, there's just something about Arlie Ermey at this point in his career where he's always doing the drill sergeant. You know, and that was almost like the character I thought he was playing in that one as well. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think it's that I think a lot of it does come down to this is a very beloved series for a lot of people. And Wes Craven wasn't behind the remake. You know, this was his baby more than any of the other ones, I think, you know, more than any of his other movies. I mean, obviously, he didn't have a problem with the Hills Have Eyes remake, the Last House on the Left remake. Any well, he was a he was a producer on those films. He was a producer on those films, but like he was very much against. I, don't, I guess they didn't even approach him to be a producer on this one. That might have I don't know. I, I don't know a lot about that backstory if they did or they did not. Uh, but I know he was very much against it, and I think that would also get a lot of people. You know, the fact that Wes Craven sort of came out against it. What? Here's here's what I don't understand, and, and this is going to be pretty unpopular. So this is yet another thing I'm saying in this episode <laughs> that, that's unpopular. Why is it, why are we so, why is this protective nature about like remaking a film? Like, why do people get so bent out of shape like that? And, um, and, I'll, and I'll call out, every time I say something general like that, everybody says, what are you talking about, Bill Shetty? So right now I'm well, gonna, I'm going to call out Bill Shetty uh, specifically because I've heard him say this. He he feels this way about things. He'll say things like, um, you know, I just can't. I don't want to see that film or made. It it means too much to me. It's you know, it's like it's too it's too personal a film experience uh -huh. to see it uh, portrayed once again. And for me, I'm like, 
you know, I'm all for it. I'm like, well, okay, you know, I you can't, I mean, you're not going to top, probably not going to top John Carpenter's The Thing, but let's just see what you got. Let's see it, right. you know? And, and and I don't mean to generalize either. There are people who, who, you know, genuinely do dislike this movie because of the movie itself. And and as we're sitting here talking, we're, we, you know, we're saying it's not a, it's not a perfect movie and it's not great by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Um, you know, so th- there are people who just dislike the movie um, and understand, you know, that's, well, anyway, where am I going with this? But w- I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, I never, well, I was never one of the ones who was always like, oh, it's, a, I mean, even with Texas Chainsaw, it didn't bother me that they did a remake. I did not have an experience of, of, like really sort of not wanting to deal with a remake, as I said before, in, until Poltergeist came out this last year, because I didn't know how much that original movie meant to me until I saw they were remaking it. And it was a little bit depressing for me. Yeah. See, and that's what I don't, I don't understand. Can you explain that a little more? Well, Cause it, I don't, I, it, why it, is that depressing? Is, a lot of it is nostalgia for me because of the of what I do remember about the movie, you know that that uh, seeing it with my friends in the theater, um, you know, we, and and it was the first. I was one of the earliest. I knew that Spielberg's name was attached to it, and we were such big fans of the Raiders of the Lost Ark that we went to the theater to see it on this bright sunny summer day, and it <laughs> terrified us, you know. But yet, when it came on cable, it was one of the first movies I ever recorded when we got a VCR. My very first videotape I ever bought. It was like the second movie I ever recorded, and I, I, I'm trying to think what the first was. I think I think it was, was it Superman two? I can't remember. But anyway, Poltergeist was on that tape, and I remember it was the second movie, and I wore, I, you know, I wore that tape down watching it. I just really, and I, I, I you would have thought it had been higher up on my favorite, you know, my top ten horror movie list. Um, with, with that in mind, but because of that. I think is what really is, is what got to me. And I think I mentioned this when we talked about the poltergeist, you know, it, it just, it, for some, that reason alone, it, it was not that I resented the remake and it was not even that I didn't want to see the remake, but I was avoiding watching the trailer yeah. and it just depressed me a little. <clears throat> I guess the thought that this is now going to be someone else's poltergeist, hmm. like a new generation's poltergeist, um, whereas I don't know, and it depends on what, what they do with it. And I, like I was saying, I couldn't even judge the movie. I, I, cause I hadn't even seen the trailer at that point. Yeah. I, um, and then after I did see the trailer after, and I haven't seen the movie yet, but after I did see the trailer, it looked as if they were putting some of the more modern elements into it, which I guess they were going to do. You know, <laughs> you're not going to make, you're not going to just go do a shot for shot remake of the eighties. You got to throw, you know, right. what's big at this, this point in horror, you got to put some of that into the movie. But well, that's what that's that's what I, I came away with. And that was what was depressing me about it a little, I think. Well, it's definitely true that the new Poltergeist um, is not as good as the old one. But sometimes it works out well. Like I remember when the Evil Dead remake was coming out, there oh. were some people who were like, oh, don't remake the Evil Dead. But it actually turned out pretty well because the new the evil, remake's strong. The Evil Dead remake is, is excellent. <clears throat> it's intense. <laughs> I'm a big fan. And the, the original Evil Dead is in my top ten. Yeah. But I really, really liked that, but I and I just I like I said it surprised me my reaction to to the poltergeist and I'm not saying that that's why people like I said I, it's not why people are coming out and saying 
oh, Nightmare on Elm Street is is bad. I, I'm not. That's again, that's generalization. People, this is just not a movie that I, some people uh, are not going to like this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are some who that is part of it. That this is a beloved series for them. I I just worry that um people are I guess. I don't want to say underestimating it, but I think underappreciating it because I think that uh, for a remake, I think it's pretty decent. And if, you know, having just revisited the first one, the original, and seeing its limitations and then seeing this, I think it's pretty impressive. And like, like for example, one little nice touch that I love that, that I can't believe has never really happened before in this series is the way that he, he scissors... He does those little scissor moves with his knives. They just go back uh-huh. and forth like when he's walking. I think that's pretty creepy in this. And I mean, I think there are some nice little touches. It's small, but I mean, you know, I think uh-huh. that there's some respect shown to this right. franchise. And I think, you know, it's not perfect, but I think they, they did it well personally. So, um, Let's move I don't disagree. I, I don't. I don't disagree. I don't think it. You know, I was expecting it. I think to be worse than it was, just from what I've heard. You know, from from what I've heard of, from other people, I was expecting it to to be worse than it was. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's not. I don't. Uh, as we're saying, it's not perfect. But no, I, as far as remakes go, you know, there there have been some uh, some strong strong remakes that have come out recently. I don't know that this is the strongest, but it's certainly not the weakest. Yeah, well, definitely. Okay. Well, let's move into our uh, final ratings and recommendations then of the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, so we'll just start with you, Wolfman Josh. What do you say about this one? What do you rate this baby? (laughs) Well, I am someone who hates the idea of remakes, (laughs) actually. (laughs) But... Once they happen, I'm also someone that says, well, let's live in reality now. It's happening. Let's take a serious look at this and let's see what they did right and what they did wrong. And I think they did a lot right, as I as I opened up saying. I think the use of the backstory here is so strong, so much stronger than it is in most of the original films. My favorite sequence is... A little nonsensical, I'll admit, the way it starts, but um, Quentin's basically swimming and then falls asleep mid-stroke, <laughs> wakes up in his Speedo um, at some kind of factory where Freddy is being chased by the Elm Street parents. Um, the way they got there is a little weird, but yeah. where they, what happens is amazing. I love that as a use of the dream world to do a flashback. I think it's brilliant. I like the idea that Freddie is leading him to show him this. Um, and we get that sense from some of the other kids too, that he's trying to lead them back to the basement of the school. I'm still not totally sure why, other than maybe just it will finally bring him all the way to life is the idea. Um, if they remember everything, but all of those elements were so cool. I also liked how there's one male victim in this film who is kind of the most extreme in terms of male victims. There's the first kill at the diner, which is really well done in terms of gore effects. Although I think that scene mostly sucks. Um, and then there's Quentin, you know, who plays a major role in the film, but in the middle there's Jesse. And I did like the idea carried over from a nightmare on Elm street Two, where you have this guy who is 
the only male victim we've seen in the franchise um, is also has the same character uh, name of Jesse. I thought that was an interesting little nod. Mm, yeah. Potent- potential oh. nod. Um, but I really dislike the way this film handled the dream world and as much credit as I give it for the plot and the dialogue and the cinematography and all of those things, I think it really undercuts the, what makes the original film special um, by not giving us those kind of amazing dreamlike shots uh, that I, that I really appreciated from the first film. So for me, I'm going to come in here at a seven and call it a strong rental recommendation. Okay. Yes. And uh, this is, so you just for some context. So in, on the original, you gave that a seven and called it a buy, but this is a seven and a strong rental. Yeah. I think the first one is definitely worth owning. And I don't think this one necessarily is. But the interesting thing to me, and we haven't discussed this yet, is that they're remaking this film again only five years later, I believe it is. Um, And they're rebooting it. So they're discounting this version. And I'm really curious as I thought about because I knew that information as I was rewatching it. And I just thought, how could they do this better? And really the main thing I thought of was using some of that dream imagery from the first four films or even first five films to really kick it up a notch. Yeah. Um, but everything else was great. Like I was, I was imagining myself like getting the opportunity to talk to the producers of this remake and pitching them what I would do differently. And it was hard to think of a lot of things to change, um, from the way they wrote the story mm-hmm. and managed a lot of these characters. Yeah. I really just liked a lot of the casting though. The casting was bad for me. Mm, okay. All right. Well, what do you say, Dr. Shock? What are like I said, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, so I'm going by memory here. Um, so I'm going to hedge my bets a little. And I'm going to say a six. I do know that I, I thought it was above average, and I did enjoy it. Uh, like I said, I wasn't as big a fan of the teenage characters this time around. Uh, as much of a fan as I was in the first one. I did like um, Jack Earl Haley. Uh, I like him as an actor, too. And um, I thought it was a good – I thought he was well cast in this film. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, I'll give it a six and call it a rental. Yep. Okay. Six and a rental. Okay. All right. All you nightmare on Elm street fans who hate this movie. I'm talking to people like Willis Wheeler, for example, because Will- Willis does not approve of this movie. As I recall, I'm talking to you. So yes, Robert England's Freddie is the best Freddy, obviously. And yes, the uh, kill scenes are incredible in the original, and they're better than those in this movie. Okay, that's fine. I admit that. But for me, this is still... um, If you're going to do a dream movie with Freddy Krueger in it and stuff, then this is the one that I would want to see, you know, of the two. I I give it a 7, which is exactly the, the same number I rated the original, except I called the original a must-see at least once rental, but um, I would buy this, actually. So if I'm going to have a Freddy movie in my collection, um, this is actually the one I prefer. I like it a little better than the original, even though the original has Robert England and the better kills. I think this feels more like, um, well, it is a more modern horror movie, but it feels more like my kind of horror movie because it's set more in reality. 
So I'm going to get some heat, but there it is. <laughs> Most of our listeners, from what I could glean, hate this movie. So we're really outside uh, the community. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, and we have been for this whole franchise, I think. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah, to a, de- to a degree. I mean, there have been, uh, you know, with with some of the movies. Yeah, I think so. Um, but anyway, I will. I'll, I'll save it for the uh, for the recap as far as what I thought okay. of, of the overall experience of rewatching. All right. Well, at, at this point, let's uh, move into our brief discussion of the documentary "Never Sleep Again: The Elm Street Legacy" from 2010. Whatever you do, don't. Nightmare on Elm Street is a bona fide classic in the same pantheon as The Exorcist, Psycho, and Night of the Living Dead. Freddy certainly was a star, kind of the father figure who takes delight in killing innocents and delights in evil. He became a character in American horror, the equal of Frankenstein and Dracula. Just seemed like ancient tragedy in a way, so it felt very classical. It was about the story, and it was a really, really good story. This is a smart, interesting little movie. It deals with reality and fantasy. So I want to start out just by saying I want to commend the Wolfman Josh because throughout this entire franchise review, he's really good at doing this. He's done this in other franchise reviews as well, but Josh has been citing various clips and quotes from this documentary. So we really got a, a nice sense of it as we've gone through. So we've talked about it a lot. And so thanks for doing that, Josh. I mean, especially since we're, we're under the gun tonight recording this. So I feel like we didn't totally shortchange the documentary, but um, this was a direct to DVD kind of documentary film. Now, did this only show up in with like as sold with, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, is that it how It was this- initially on the double-disc DVD of the original film, Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. Uh, currently, it is on Blu-ray as a standalone documentary, and it is currently streaming on Netflix as well. Yeah, nice. Okay, so if you're in the States, you can watch this. And, and it's pretty lengthy, too, right? I mean, this is like... Um, what is it? I, I, I did 240 have minutes. Thank you. Thanks for having it. Yeah, so it's pretty long. I mean, they cover... I mean, it came out in 2010, so they do a good job of covering the franchise and everything. Um, These are the same guys that did the Crystal Lake Memories documentary that we talked about uh, before. And they've done a Scream documentary, and it's kind of in their wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I actually... I appreciate their work and I, I like what they do here. And, and they, um, so like this is kind of, it covers, it has like tons of different interviews, right? I mean, they got, of course, Wes Craven, Robert England, Heather Langenkamp, Robert Shea, Lisa Wilcox. Um, just you go down through, it's like a who's who. They got pretty much everybody. Is there anybody you can think of, Josh, that they missed on this? Um, <clears throat> did they end up getting Patricia Arquette? I think they did actually, they? but they didn't ask her um, the main question about why she didn't participate in part uh, four. I also don't think they got Johnny Depp, oh, okay. but they did show a clip of Johnny Depp on inside the actor's studio. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but I mean, they even had like um, this has some Alice Cooper in it, and 
So yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, if you're a, a fan of this franchise, I think it's definitely worth your time. Uh, do you like this documentary, Dr. Shock? I haven't seen it. Okay. I haven't had a chance to see it, so I, uh, I can't really comment on it, but it does sound very interesting. And a lot of people have really been, um, uh, you know, singing its praises on the comment board. Mm-hmm. So it's one that I will eventually check out. How long is it again? 214 minutes. Yeah. But the thing is, they cover every film basically the way we did, but instead of, you know, reviewing them, they have oral history interviews. So you can skip around. You don't have to watch the whole thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is something I, and was that, was that, that, I'm sorry, I might have missed this. Is that on the Blu ray set that came out recently? Probably. I know it's on a standalone Blu ray. I would not be surprised if it's in the, Blu-ray box set, which I do not own because I refuse to own some of these movies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I do. Um, yeah, I see this movie all the time now. Like, okay. Yeah, but like, you know, I went to FYE to get a couple of these because it was just as cheap as buying them on Amazon or renting them on Amazon. And uh, like the original DVD, uh, it was like four ninety nine, and it came with this documentary as well. Nice. Yeah. I, well, it is something that I, I do want to see, mm-hmm. you know, that, so I, I'll check it out at some point. Yeah. I mean, I think it was made with some loving care. You can tell, but, um, but yeah, Josh, you, you hit a lot of the nice highlights and you even pulled a clip or two from it, um, for this podcast, right? Oh in, yeah. In cl- uh, anytime we've heard an extended clip, I would say nine times out of 10, it's come from never sleep again. So, right. Like for yeah. example, when we reviewed, um, Freddie's revenge, and we had that clip about um, all the homosexual stuff that comes from this documentary, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so Josh, would you would you tell people that this is something that they should see? Or, I mean, like, what's your? You're a documentary filmmaker. What do you rate this? I mean, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, I would say it's not a great movie. It's not a great film because I see documentaries as not just information dumps, but rather, you know, storytelling. And so in that sense, it's not a great movie. If you are looking at this as just a resource, like the way you would buy a reference book, like like the um, Crystal Lake Memories coffee table book. Like this is a great reference guide to the films and it's got great takes from a lot of the major players all the way through. It really tells the new line cinema story better than anything I've ever seen. And so, you know, it is, it is great. I don't think it's a great film, but it's awesome, you know, reference piece. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have a rating for it? It's well shot. Um, It looks nice for the most part. I think it's better than, I really love Crystal Lake Memories, but I actually think this is better. This has got some cool um, animation and claymation kind of going on throughout, too, which is kind of cool. Um, a rating? I, I don't know. I don't know how you rate something like this. but um, <laughs> Why not? Because it's not a movie. It's like... It's a it's documentary. Like, it's like a YouTube um, you know, essay or something. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a special feature documentary, though. You know, like, there's a difference between um, a theatrical documentary and a special feature documentary. Yeah, but, I mean, it is, like, as you said, I mean, it is just kind of an informative, informational type of historical, you know, type of piece. So Whatever I gave Doc of the Dead, I'll give this. Okay, so it's along those lines for you. Yeah. All right, yeah, for me, so, go ahead. 
I would say Doc of the Dead tell, tries even more to be a movie than this does, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I actually like Doc of the Dead, and it features Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead. Anyway, this is a 6 to me, 6 out of 10. I say rent it, and um, if you're a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, it's an absolute must-see. No doubt about that. Okay. All right, so we got that covered, kind of. So... <laughs> Oh, people are happy with that. And by the way, that did win an award. I see um, when I looked on Wikipedia about this, it said it, it, it won the best direct-to-video title and best-in-show categories in Home Media's Magazine 2010 Reaper Awards, Josh. Now, that's some clout. Yeah, I've never heard of the Reaper Awards, but <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. It's kind of like how Movie Podcast Weekly won uh, Podbody Awards. Hey, easy. easy. <laughs> I'm just saying. Wolfman Josh gave Doc of the Dead a six and said it's a must-watch for zombie fans. And so I would guess I would say this is a six and a must-watch for Freddy fans. That's what I said. That's great. We actually agree on some things. All right. Well, I got something special for everybody right here. <laughs> so at this point, we're going to move into uh, some very exciting, very special uh, listener feedback. This is actually, and I'm not just saying this, this is, this has to be the best part of our franchise reviews because this is where we get the real goods from people, <laughs> where we find out what people think and we get good information. And I have a voicemail from here that I would like to kick off with. Um, this is from Jessica in North Carolina, who is a true Fred head. And here's what Jessica says. Hey, guys, this is Jessica here from North Carolina, a self-proclaimed Fred head. I love that term, by the way. I don't consider it derogatory at all. And I'm also an avid listener. Jay, you were asking for some Freddy Krueger-related voicemails, so here's my contribution. I love Freddy so very, very much. I own a talking Freddy doll, Freddy refrigerator magnet, a drinking glass, the entire franchise on DVD and Blu-ray, and this Freddy costume, and my boyfriend actually got me a signed autograph of Robert England wishing me a Merry Christmas a couple of years ago. I geeked out so hardcore, you have no idea. My favorite item, however, is in my bedroom window. I took out the curtains and put up one of those plastic Freddy posters that covers the entire window. When you turn a light on in the room, it makes Freddy glow and it looks like he's jumping at you. My next-door neighbors see this whenever they pass by my house. I like to think of it as cheap home security. <laughs> but anyway, I just wanted to let you guys know how much I love your show and the reviews of the Nightmare franchise so far. Make me proud, guys. No pressure. Thanks again. Bye. See, now, doesn't that voicemail make you feel guilty for all the hard things we've said about the franchise? No, I feel bad, no. Jessica. Does it make you feel guilty? Well, I know. I, I mean, she loves it. And I'm like, man, she loves this. And... I, I need to love it more somehow. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I think you need to do a better job. <laughs> yep. I concur. Oh, I loved her voicemail, Jessica. It was great. And I, I, I think it's really interesting, right? Okay, Freddy is a monster. I mean, he is a literal monster, but she loves him. And she has a like a, a, a plush toy thing of him. And I think that's interesting how we can t kind of um, latch on to our monsters, right? I mean, I know Dr. Shock and I have a, a certain kind of um, fondness for Leatherface, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they, there's a certain compassion for him as a monster. And, and I wonder if this all 
and I'm being serious here, not joking. I, I wonder if this kind of stems back to our influence from Sesame Street, right? Because Sesame Street tried to make monsters seem not scary, so they gave us <laughs> Cookie Monster and Grover you and realize Elmo. They, did you see the new Hotel Transylvania? No, no. They actually reference that in this movie. In that movie, they have um, <laughs> the little kid is a vampire or might be a vampire. They're they're trying to decide, and the the grandfather, played by the Adam Sandler vampire character, is really intent that he become a monster. So he asks him what his favorite monster is, and it's basically like Elmo or, <laughs> or something like that. It's like, <laughs> He's like, monsters like to share. He's like, monsters do not like to share. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, I thought that was brilliant on, um, you know, the part of Sesame Street to try to, like, make kids not afraid of monsters by making monsters your friends. And I just think it's kind of interesting because we see it in adult horror fans where they have a particular fondness for someone who is essentially just a killer and a maniac. And, and I'm not judging Jessica, of course, because I think it's cool. I'm, I'm just saying, isn't that fascinating that we we feel this way about our monsters? Like so many people love Michael Myers, like with with a real fondness of heart. Oh, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I've I've not really put Elmo and Michael Myers in the same context before. <laughs> <laughs> Nor did I actually. You just tried to make it seem like I did. I like I put them on the same level. You're trying to set no, no, me no, up. No, well, no, no, no. I'm not, that's <laughs> not what I meant at all. I wasn't trying to set you up. I'm honestly saying I've never really approached it in that way before. You know. Okay. Well, it's time to face time, the facts. Time to do so. time, it's time, time to, to face time the time facts, to, Dave. All right. Is Oscar the Grouch? Do you think maybe he's a little scary? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering. I mean, maybe people love him. Like when I. I'm just I'm just asking the questions, the hard questions on horror movie podcasts right now. Hmm. I mean, Zombie Seven over there, they're covering, um, you know, for Halloween, they're covering the the um, it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. So hey. I'm just saying. No, I mean, I think you're right. I, I you know, yep. I purposely with my own kids try to show them talk about. I purposely talk about Elmo and. Yeah, all those people as monsters, and I showed them Monsters Inc. very early for that re- same reason. Like, yes. you like monsters; they are friendly. <laughs> you know, this is a fun <laughs> thing we do. You know what's interesting about this, though, in all seriousness, and I thanks Jessica for the voicemail because it really got me thinking about a few things along these lines. Yes, these these hideous, like beastly freak type monsters are not real like we tell our kids but monsters who look like robert england meaning his freddy character without the makeup you know monsters who look like everyday people actually exist and we tell our kids monsters don't exist and i think that's very chilling and i think that's one of the difficult things for me as a parent because like in a sense you lie to your kids to some extent by saying, oh, there are no, there's no such thing as monsters, but really we know there are. Right. Yeah. I love it, Jay. I That's love fine. it. You love monsters? No, I love the, I mean, I love what you just said. I think it's profound and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's very upsetting to me, to be honest with you. Um, But anyways, okay. 
Well, thank you, Jessica. And um, I believe uh, Josh has some really nice stuff for us, too, from the listeners. Yeah. So, I mean, we just had um, a lot of listener feedback and we're going to get to as much of it as we can. It is hard to go comb through it all and find the lengthier review like comments. But we wanted to get your guys takes on each of these films. Unfortunately, you know, like each episode has 127 comments but only two or three of them are actually reviews of the film. A lot of it's just interplay between the different people and it's awesome community. I love these guys um, and gals and we just have so many great people commenting here, but I just uh, wanted to apologize. I'm not going to get to everybody's comments because not everyone's comments were formulated in a way that we can necessarily read them on the show. Um, there were a lot of comments that came up over and over again, things that, um, I thought we should touch on. Some of those were nostalgia, sleep paralysis, the origin story. Um, and so these are things that I needed to touch on that were kind of controversial in tone. Um, the first one I wanted to read is from Dr. Nightmare. He's a listener of ours. And he did not like the way we talked about sleep paralysis because he knows a little bit about dreams. I, so, yeah, I loved his. Is this his technical comment? Because I love yes. that. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, and 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 Josh, you you seemed a little dismissive of what he said on the comment boards. Were you being dismissive? How was I being dismissive? Because <laughs> you were like, we got a lot of crazy mad doctors on here, or something like oh, that. Oh, that's like, just. Was, that's just being friendly, Jay. That's okay. just breaking the ice. No, I love I love stuff like this. Okay, um, okay. And I, and I mentioned to him over on the uh, Sci-Fi podcast, we've got this guy we call Brain, who's a real life physicist, and he comes on and talks about the science of a lot of the fiction that we're discussing over there. And I love that kind of stuff. It's kind of like uh, you know the Kyle Bishop effect to some degree, right? Right. And I love this kind of stuff too. So Doctor Nightmare says to us. I'm a cognitive scientist, and the discussion of sleep paralysis touched a nerve. Sleep paralysis originates from the fact that while you sleep, your body is paralyzed due to a dopamine circuit in the brain stem. Now, sometimes the brain gets it wrong and wakes up your systems in the wrong order. Thus, your mind is sometimes—oh, sorry. Thus, your mind is sometimes awake and aware, but your body is still paralyzed. This is what causes you to feel like you can't move or breathe. You can breathe, but it feels like you can't due to the dopamine circuit. Now, your mind is trapped in this half-awake, half-asleep state and can lead to hallucinations. I suffer from sleep paralysis and saw an uh, <laughs> Einsatzgruppen soldier cave my brother's face in with a hammer. Sorry, I don't. That's a German word, but I don't know that German word. Vivid, violent hallucinations are common, and so the ha- and so are the hag and the shadow man. But it's due to your body waking up out of order. Not aliens or ghosts or some such thing. Just the wondrous beauty that is the human brain. So thank you, Doctor Nightmare. I really enjoyed that. Comment. I love. Yeah, it. that that was an excellent comment. I remember. I remember reading that. I thought it was very interesting how he uh, how he broke that down technically. You know. <laughs> Absolutely. How, he, how he explained it. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. And what's interesting is he said that he suffers from sleep paralysis, right? And um, Josh, at one point on the show, you said that we shouldn't focus on it too much because people who who learn about it and know about it, um, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, that, you, that it tends to uh, at least creep that's what they in. Said. 
in the documentary The Nightmare, the more you kind of like research about it and think about it, the more likely you are to suffer from it. Mm. So I don't know if that's true. You know, I, as I told him on the boards, the the documentary The Nightmare is not in any way based on the science. It's based on kind of um, just people's stories, you know, their mm-hmm. own accounts of their experiences with sleep paralysis. So, I mean, I can see why that would be frustrating to someone who actually understands the science. But it's also what makes it interesting. They were trying to basically make a horror documentary, and it's the closest I can think of to a true horror documentary. So, yeah, hmm. it's kind of cool. Okay. Um, Jay of the Dead was a topic of hot discussion during this uh, franchise review. You know, you know what? What else is name around? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and you know, some of those things were comments about his colon. There were quite a few of those. <laughs> um. But there, you're also you were really there. Were, people had a, a big problem with your comments about nostalgia. So I want to get to <laughs> some of those comments, and then and then I'd love to give you the opportunity to respond. But first, Jay, there was a great comment from Sal that I was hoping you could read. Okay, you got it. Sal writes, <clears throat> "Jay never ceases to amaze me." <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to put this. With the whole rapping, skateboarding, martial arts, being in a band, etc., Jay's way cooler than he comes across. <laughs> There's a total contrast with how he comes across and the real Jay that every once in a while he reveals. <laughs> so that's great. I appreciate that. I'll take that as a compliment. And yes, I'm a man of many stories and many uh, very <laughs> varying tales. It's life. also funny that, that Sal, when he originally wrote that, wrote that um, rather than rapping, he wrote raping. Raping, and, yes. Uh, right. That that also uh, started a spark of conversation. <laughs> right. Which I, which I believe his um his comment of raping, I think that was unintentional no, spelling. Was, I believe so as <laughs> well. Because I believe that is not in my storied past for, for certain but um, there was one thing. So yeah, I'm glad he actually brought that up. It reminded me, um, I I've I dropped the ball, Wolfman Josh, on the rap. I actually worked. I probably put a total of uh, probably four hours into preparing it, and I didn't get it done on time. But I will I will be producing a horror movie podcast rap. How about for Christmas? <sighs> Maybe, but it won't be Christmas themed. But, no, um, I know, but I just mean like a Christmas present to the listeners. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do have a rap in the works, and that was not me just talking. But so I'm sorry that I failed to deliver on that. So and the the topic of the rap it was something that was going back and forth, right? Well, it's 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 going to be a horror theme yeah, rap. The, the, yeah, the Mount Rushmore yeah. of horror is what we had discussed. Oh, okay. Yeah, a bunch of horror stuff. Mm-hmm. Nice. nice. Okay. Okay, so now we're going to move on to the discussion of nostalgia. And uh, as long as we're on Sal, I'll stick with Sal. And then, Dave, maybe you could read Michael Orion's uh, comment after that. Sure. Sal says, I'm calling you out, Jay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even five minutes into this podcast, but you've already said something that is straight up wrong. You've done this several times in the past, but you did it again here. I'm giving him a real salty demeanor here. You just like something, which is totally cool, (laughs) as we all have likes and dislikes, but you dismiss anyone liking it by simply stating they like it because of blank. In this case, you're saying fans of A Nightmare on Elm Street are only fans due to nostalgia. That's cheap, yo. That's like someone coming up and saying to you, hey, look, 
I know you think you love Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but really you don't. You only think you do because of nostalgia. If someone said that to you, you'd slap them with all of your might with your soggy hot liquid cookie because sometimes <laughs> fools deserve to get paid back in delicious, <clears throat> in delicious yet liquidy ways. So for people who don't get the cookie reference, on Movie Podcast Weekly, I shared that uh, one time I got this uh, chocolate chip cookie from the you know concession stand at the movie theater and it was just hot liquid. It was so gross. So anyway, good reference. Go ahead. Sorry. So uh, there's a couple more comments like unto this one. Dave, why don't you read Michael Orion's? Michael Orion. Okay. Uh, I have to say the whole nostalgia reasoning is complete dog poop. I find Nightmare (laughs) better written, directed, and acted than Friday the 13th, which really is quite boring in my opinion. Nightmare has generally effective scenes such as the kill with Tina being dragged screaming on the ceiling and Freddy's imprint through the wall. Nancy is also a way better final girl than Laurie Strode for the simple fact that Laurie doesn't do anything and basically survives on a fluke. Wow. Yeah. And then Dave, um, I I don't know why people feel the need to trash Halloween when defending a nightmare on Elm street, but that is a continuing theme here. Uh, Dave, could you also read Fritz's comment? Absolutely. Okay, Fritz, uh, Fritz says, uh, gotta say, I was born in 1990 and didn't see this until I was about 12 years old. Enjoyed it, but did not consider it my favorite until I grew older. So the whole nostalgia thing is not accurate on my part. I can understand not having a high opinion of this movie, but there was so much going on at New Line Cinema when this was made. The movie literally made them a major studio. Did I read that right? There was so much going on. Yes, it literally made yeah. them a major studio. As far as some of the effects not being the best and maybe look a little cheesy, I'm going to refer to the uh, HMP Golden Movie Halloween. Yes, they were both low budget, no question there, but Halloween required no, nowhere near the effects needed to make this film. In the scene where Nancy is asleep at Tina's house and Freddy comes through the wall, no CGI, no dimmer light like was used in Halloween. It was a sheet of spandex and very careful lighting that made that amazing practical effect possible. Oh, that um, that last comment was directed at me at the very end of our first episode. I said, oh, wait, there's one more fact that I wanted to say that I didn't. And I mentioned the the poor CGI in this movie and compared it to Frighteners. And I, how much I've thought about I wish I just didn't pipe up and say that last comment because <laughs> there were like 30 comments about how wrong I was and how it was a practical effect. <laughs> and you guys, I get it. It was a practical effect. You're right. That, that happened. Um, <laughs> nice. There was also some disagreement on the origin story, but I, I ultimately believe I'm either right or it's a tie on that one. So um, just two more comments about this uh, nostalgia idea before I think Jay uh, should take over and, de- and defend himself. I'm going to read one from Dino <laughs> and then Jay, if you could read one from Armored Foe. Okay, got it. Dino says, Jay of the Dead's nostalgia theory is absolute nutballs. <laughs> this movie definitely holds up against time and is just as good as when it was when I first watched it. Does it look a little dated? Yes, of course. Hello, 80s fashion. And some of the effects are a little sorry, are some of the effects a little over the top cheesy? Yes, of course. But the film is extremely well made. The soundtrack is still creepy and fantastic. The premise is strong, the imagery is iconic, and the story progresses in a way that is always engaging. The only thing that has faded a bit for me 
is that it wasn't quite as scary as I remembered. But that doesn't detract from what is still a classic horror tale. That's Dino. Okay. And uh, Armored Foe says, I'm with you, Jay. While I'm connected to this film by nostalgia, because he was one of my childhood monsters as well, even as a kid, I never really connected to him and thought he was scary. While you guys mentioned the premise is fantastic and indeed is scary, the movie's one-liners and Freddy constantly speaking took me out of it and, in my opinion, breaks the tension of what should have been scary. So while mentally Freddy is the ultimate killer, he never really pulled it off in my mind. The first movie is the only one I own, and I don't need the rest. The comedy outweighs the horror, in my opinion for this to be a real contender in my horror faves. Overall, great overview, guys, and I can't wait to hear more on the sequels. Cheers. Okay. So, Jay, this idea, Armored Foe agrees with you. No one else in the world does. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, no, I will say, so who was the original? Um, was it Sal, the original one? I believe the first Sal one you was read? the first one to call you out. Yep. Okay, yeah. You know what? I think. You know, I think I have to... Because I've thought about this a lot. Because I read that comment right after he, lo- he wrote it. And I'm like, okay, was that unfair? Was that unjust? And um, yeah, maybe maybe you're right about that. Maybe that is unfair to say, okay, you like this movie just because you have nostalgia for it. So, yeah, I mean, may- maybe that's true, honestly, the more I've thought about it. But I will say, how many of you people out there who feel this way, how many of you... Love this movie, but we're totally dismissive of the the remake because I would argue that like I I think there are many good things about the remake too, and so I just I, I don't know I just I wonder if because for me at least the reason I brought up the nostalgia thing I do face that nostalgia factor when I like if there's a movie that I loved as a kid. Um, I have a, a real soft spot for it as a grown-up, even though it's not quite as great, you know, as I used to think it was when I see it in the the harsh light of day. But, you know, I can at least admit that. And I'm not saying you guys can't admit it, but I'm just saying that for, <laughs> me, for me, like, that that is a factor sometimes. And so, um, but if you say it's not a factor for you, then then I will say I was wrong to say that about you. How's that, Josh? Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> not, not bad. I, my, my only concern would be is that uh, you're not saying that people who dislike the remake dislike it just because of they love the original. Or are you saying that? No, I'm not saying that. But I think that it's interesting that people can be so, for lack of a better word, dismissive of the remake and yeah, I know there are some reasons, there are some weaknesses to it as we've discussed, but I feel like people really give a lot of leniency or really give a pass to the original, whereas they did not give nearly as much um, grace to this remake. Okay, well now we're going to go through each of the films uh, and t- and read some of your feedback. Some of these are really long, and so... Jay and Dave, if you see places that you want to trim them down, um, go for it. I think some of them make really good points that aren't necessarily uh, point-by-point reviews, though, that are like kind of thematic things that we could discuss like as though, you know, it's a question for the panel here. But um, Dave, do you want to read Mikey's? 
Yep, we'll do. Mikey M says, hi, guys. I'm new to this podcast, but uh, having just caught up on the fantastic franchise re- franchise reviews of Halloween, Friday the 13th and Scream, I felt compelled to write in to say how shocked I was by how negative the general consensus was on the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I do agree that, in the words of Casey Becker, the sequel sucked, but the original is more creative, more innovative, more original, and far more expertly crafted than any of the genetic slashers of the early 80s, including Friday the 13th. It's true that not everything in the movie makes sense, like those moments you guys brought up in the podcast, why does Freddy... what, why does Freddy would make Rod's murder look like a suicide? Why does Freddy make Rod's murder look like a suicide? Why do none of the adults uh, believe Nancy, even when actually they've witnessed her pulling a hat out of thin air while she sleeps? But to me, all these questions are what makes the film all the more nightmarish and unsettling. Nothing seems to quite make sense or add up. Like the whole movie is this horrible, queasy fever dream. None of the adults in the movie, including Nancy's parents, Listen to Nancy or want to help her. They ignore her pleas, even when they've seen what her nightmares are doing to her. She's completely alone and helpless. The boogeyman is coming for her, and there are no grown-ups to turn to. The whole movie is the whole movie is a child's worst nightmare. I think these days it's easy to lose perspective on this movie due to the legacy it left behind, but in isolation, I struggle to comprehend how and couldn't appreciate what a truly dark and brutal masterpiece a nightmare on Elm Street is. Hmm. And I and I was a fan of the original. Yeah. yeah, I think we all were to some degree, but I think we probably are not as high on it as most horror fans. Right. Well, Dave or, gave it a nine, right, Dave? Yeah, I did, I'm pretty it. sure I gave it a nine. Absolutely, yeah. it was a buy. But and, and let's also be clear: just because we dreaded doing this franchise review <laughs> doesn't right. mean that all the movies are terrible. As I said right. tonight, like I think they're they are highly watchable. Um, it's just one that we're not all particular fans of. Josh, you and I have actually been much kinder than I expected us to be in this. I, I was mean. way kinder than I anticipated because I've spent my entire <laughs> life hating this franchise. And I went in with as much of an open mind as I could, mostly for Juan and Dino. I did this for you guys. I tried my hardest to like these movies. So. <laughs> and I, for me personally, I was not looking forward to sitting down with some of them. But uh, I didn't. I didn't have as negative an experience as I assumed I was going to. You know, I was a little snarky early on. It's like, oh boy. But I kind of. I kind of liked it. I mean, I had forgotten. I had actually forgotten. I knew I liked the third. I had forgotten how much I liked Dream Warriors. You know, I mean, I hold that one not quite as high as the as as the original, but darn near. I'll tell you, you know, one I, problem though. When you're doing these franchise reviews, and then you're like only. With I'm only watching movies within the world of this franchise. Mm-hmm. Right. You start to lower your scale a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I did. I noticed this with the Friday the Thirteenth movies. I rated these movies all so much higher than I would if I had say watched, you know, Friday the Thirteenth Part Four, and then it follows, and then Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, and then the Babadook, and then Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Right. right. Like really great movies interspersed. Well, interestingly enough, I did not have that same experience just because of with the blog. I'm watching right. movies in between right. these all the time. Hmm. Um, so I was I would didn't watch just sit down and watch them all straight through. Um, but even with that, uh, I found myself enjoying the more even the like the fourth one, which I didn't come in high on, but there were things about it that I did enjoy. You know, visually, I thought visually it was it was 
and excellent. You know, parts of it were excellent, uh, and some very from some very strong scenes in it as well. Obviously, the later you get, um, started yeah. it wasn't quite the same. But um, you know, you look at those first three and, and arguably first four movies, and well, no, I can't say that because I wasn't a big fan of the second one either. I, I think I came into the five on that. Which one. I'm really surprised by that, Doctor Shock. Josh and I like that one. No, I mean, I, I, it's got I, a lot was... of problems. But I kind of wanted to take a stance on the critical analysis and say, you know, objectively, that's not terrible as compared to the rest of the franchise. And so I, I I was being a little bit contrarian with that review, but it, but I really did enjoy more of it than I thought I would. Mm-hmm. I could absolutely though see lowering my ratings for four, five, and six pretty easily. Like if I was to intersperse it with better watching opportunities. But yeah, huh. yeah, I'm with you. Well, my thing is when I started the considering the sequels podcast back in 2010. I uh, see. I thought the the greatest idea in the world, <laughs> for some reason, would be to just watch movie franchises because that's what we reviewed. We reviewed movie franchises of of all genres on that podcast, and um, as I've said many times, nobody listened to it. But what was really interesting to me was uh, Dave and I both listened to it. Yeah, yeah. I listened. To yeah, it. you two are true friends. That's how I know right there. But <laughs> the thing of it is. It's not as good of an idea as it sounds to watch like all the movies in a franchise. Like like right now, if somebody said to me, hey, you want to watch the Die Hard franchise? It's like, yeah, let's go do it right now, you know? But then right. like once you start doing that and you get into it, you're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, you know what I mean? It's like eating a bunch of Reese's. Like Reese's. That, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah, I was hoping you weren't going to cut off my Reese's peanut no, butter no, no, cup no, analogy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but no, if you eat, like, if somebody says you want Reese's, it's like, yes, like, a lot of them. And then you start eating Reese's peanut butter cups. And then when, if you get, like, one of those big packs, you know what I'm talking about? There are four of them. Once uh-huh. you get to the fourth one, you're pretty much done with Reese's, and that's how movie franchises are for me. So there's that. But go ahead, Doc. Sorry. I was actually going to say that um, for years I had been a uh, not a defender, but I had been a a mild fan of like The Godfather Part Three. I thought there was a lot of strength in that movie. And I as being such, you know, loving the first two movies, uh, it it was almost like I looked at as a reunion of these characters, even though not all of them were there. Me too. And there were things about it I really liked. I liked Andy Garcia's character. I liked some of where they took the different stories that they brought it forward a little bit. And they were then now they were showing Michael in the on the decline and somebody new coming in. I thought it was really you know had a lot of strength to it until I did an entire franchise watch of sitting down watching one, two, and three. <laughs> when you do that, the issues with three are glaring. You know, and you start to see how it doesn't quite hold up. And I'm not talking Sofia Coppola either. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, true. That it's... was that was more of an unfortunate uh, situation than it was. Um, I guess narcissism played into it. But in nepotism, he had, yes, uh, he, it, narcissism. That's what I meant. Why did I say narcissism? Well, that's probably true as well. <laughs> yeah, but no nepotism. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, nepotism. Um, nepotism played into it to some degree, but. Winona Ryder was cast and pulled out at the last minute. 
I mean, she was going to play the character and pulled out to make, I think, Beetlejuice, uh, not Beetlejuice, um, Edward Scissorhands. So, you know, he was kind of, his hand was forced, um, not forced. I guess he could have got someone else. But that was the re- one of the reasons that Sofia Coppola ended up in that role. And it is, it's probably the one, the poorest performance in the entire trilogy. But I don't want to go into it too much. What I'm just saying is, is that, yes, sometimes when you sit and you watch a franchise like that, when you look at one movie by itself and say, hey, that was pretty good. But then when you sit and you watch it with the rest of the series, you do pick out and say, wow, it's not, it's not as good as I thought it was. Yeah, it just starts to wear on you. You know, we all suffered this toward the end of the the uh, Friday the Thirteenth franchise. We were yeah. just getting uh, a little weary, and right. I mean, maybe it's because I didn't have to talk about the last two films, but I didn't feel that as much with this franchise, honestly. <laughs> and it's interesting; it didn't happen with Scream because Scream was maybe only four. It's a lot shorter. You know, it's yeah. a lot that shorter makes a big difference. It does yeah. make a difference. Well, plus, once you get up to like things like Freddy versus Jason or Jason X, you know what I mean? It gets yeah. kind of wild, you know? Uh-huh. But Okay. Well, I've got a couple more comments here for part one. This one goes perfectly with what we're discussing as we're all lamenting having to do our jobs here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Dark Mark says, wah, wah. Everyone has to watch the Nightmare series. Poor hosts. (laughs) Okay, that's sarcasm. This is a big franchise with a huge fan base in horror. It deserves a big review by the esteemed HMP crew and guests. I like this series a lot, but I do like Halloween and Friday the 13th franchises more. As a child, I wasn't old enough to watch this series. In fact, I randomly hated both Freddy and Jason because there were so many movies and it seemed ridiculous to me. Also, the kids on the playground would never shut up about Jason and Freddy and who would win in a fight. There's something about dreams in movies that bore me. I'm just not a dream guy, and Thank I don't have. You. Thank you. <laughs> and I don't have really, and I don't really have nightmares. Most of the time, when someone wakes up from a dream sequence in a movie, I'm like, "Good, let's get on with the movie." Stupid dream sequence. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's great. Nightmare on Elm Street actually has a real threat in the dream realm, which is pretty cool. And I think the lack of boundaries, like Jay of the Dead was saying, bothers me a bit too. too. When I first watched Nightmare on Elm Street, I thought Nancy died at the end. When Freddy drove up, I couldn't figure out if the whole thing was a dream or if this was just a surprise ending. I guess the ending wasn't very satisfying to me after all. It was Dark Mark. Good job, Dark Mark. And then, uh, Jay, do you want to attempt Sal's? Opus. Yeah, I got, um, yeah, this is kind of a longer comment, so I'll just take an excerpt from it. Uh, Sal writes, I'm going to start off my thoughts on this film by using one of Jay's favorite lines against him. (laughs) (laughs) I, I like that. Horror happens to those who deserve it least. In Nightmare, when you have the best examples of this, Okay, none of these kids in this movie deserves to be terrified by their nightmares and killed off by Freddy. Yet, they're being punished not for something they did, but for something their parents did. It's all about the sins of the parents. The parents did something that greatly offended Freddy, which I think we can all agree that if someone burns us alive, we're going to be a little upset with them. But the parents get... A free pass from Freddy. Instead of the parents having to worry about revenge, they just have to worry about Freddy going after their kids. 
Granted, that might be a crueler punishment than if Freddie went right after the parents, but the kids are still being punished for a crime committed by someone else. Worse yet, some of the kids killed aren't even aware of why they're being hunted and killed. It's a weird thing, but if someone hates me enough to come after me, I'd, I'd like to at least know what I did to get myself killed. These kids are such victims because this isn't some random crime. This is a deliberate attack against them, and they're not even told why. So, so why did he say that that was using it against me? Because it seems like when it, horror happens to those who deserve it least, the kids deserve it least because they're innocent. Well, I think that's why he's saying is yeah, that, that's that, what makes he's, this, that makes this a great film. That's what he's saying. Yeah, he's oh, okay. Shooting, shooting, shooting you down, saying that I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. That it doesn't work. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, it, well, we've always loved the premise. You know, we've we've always mm-hmm. loved the the story of it. It's Freddy with the giant freaking arms stretch across the alley that bother me. That's like what that's what got to me. I mean, right? Or or like I mean, I haven't heard any of these nightmare defenders really bring that up. I mean, they've said it in pat they've like swept it under the rung rug by saying, <laughs> Yeah, there there are some like effects and you know, but still, right, Freddy, right? Like that's wow. <laughs> no. Yeah, I I, I think we also uh, agreed that the the hands thing was a little. I th- I don't think it worked quite like um, Wes Craven had intended it to. Oh, okay. You know, but yeah, I, I don't know that it, it it certainly wasn't a deal breaker for the movie though. Right. Right. Well, well, I, I give props to Sal right now for for quoting me. So yes. If you're, if you're quoting me, I agree with you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Good. I'm sorry. Like, people are hating me right now. Go ahead. No, not at all. Uh, Dave, do you want to read Fritz's comment? Certainly. Okay. Fritz says, uh, this entire movie to me is frightening on a completely different level than just what is seen and what happens because of Freddy. Most movies of this nature take place over a day and night. This story takes place well over a week at least. Most of the time, it's just like in the Halloween or Friday the 13th franchises. Oh, there's my best friend I've known for years, and they're all slashed up. Or, and they're slashed up. Ah, I'm afraid. Better keep running. Whereas the Nightmare on Elm Street movies always have the funeral scene. You see the coffin. Oftentimes, you see the parents of the victim. I know we've all lost loved ones at one point or another. There's nothing more real or more heartbreaking than attending a funeral in my mind. The fact that these movies aren't just bam, 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 bunch of people dead, but instead are a slow burn within the movie uh, within the movie that actually shows the pain that comes with losing loved ones left and right. As far as Heather Langenkamp, there's a lot of first-timers in their sla- these slasher films. Excuse my blasphemy, but I'm not that big a fan of Jamie Lee Curtis in the very first Halloween. How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I thought she was great in H2O, much like how Heather is so much better in New Nightmare. I got to say, though, compared to Halloween and Friday the 13th, Heather is, without a doubt, the most attractive of the bunch. With the talk of Robert being short of, and the, with the talk of Robert being short and the comedy, a huge 6'7 Freddy would not work for me personally. He's not Jason Voorhees. He's not some giant mental patient like Michael. He's just a local small-town guy who happens to have been a complete monster. Oftentimes in life, the scariest-looking people are teddy bears, and the non-imposing people are the ones to be absolutely terrified of. The comedy is without a doubt. Uh, it, the that's right. Comedy, you remember yeah. that, people. 
I'm just the comedy <laughs> is <laughs> the comedy is without a doubt that comes from a sick and disgusting mind such as Freddie. As Robert once said in an interview, Freddie knows uh, what's in your underwear drawer. He's in the bed with those girls. He's in their dreams, and that is rape in every sense of the word. Quite frankly, if Jason came through and just knocked my head off, it wouldn't be as scary as Freddie talking to me and taunting me and enjoying every minute of seeing my fear and horror. I honestly believe I could get away from Michael if I had to. Same with Jason. I feel like I couldn't knock Jason down, but that I could bang Michael on the head and knock him out for a short while. There's no getting away from Freddie. You will go to sleep eventually, and when you do, he's going to really enjoy, perhaps even sexually enjoy, slicing you up. I, I love that comment. Yeah. But, but isn't there a Superman effect with this, like a reverse Superman effect? Like, he's too powerful. Like, we need to have an Achilles heel for him to really be an interesting character. Right. I call uh-huh. it the Superman problem in our reviews. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the problems. But what I love about Fritz's comment here, I think it's very cool when it goes back to Jessica's voicemail a little bit. As uh, you can tell that he's thought about these monsters a lot, and he's—it's obvious that Fritz, Fritz has put himself in these situations and thought, okay, well, how would I come up against these monsters? How would I right. co- cope with them? And I think that's super cool. That shows how effective all three of them are if they made him do that. Yeah, and and we talked about it in the review of the first one when we were talking about you know like like the the premise. Yes, I, that that is what makes Freddy possibly the most frightening of them all is that he'll only meet you on his turf, and at that point you're defenseless. You know, there's not much you can do to defend yourself. Well, and let's talk about that real quick. I mean, that's one thing that does bother me about him though is because once these kids pick up on the fact that they're in a dream and they have some degree of power. It happens so frequently in this franchise, especially in like what three and four in those movies where they're like, okay, I'm going to use my dream powers against him. And then they do something in their dream, but it, it irks me how quickly he counters that. And, and it just, it bugs me so bad. Sorry. No, I totally agree with you too. Okay, what we got next? Should we move on? Okay, so I've got one more comment for from Dino on this film, and then we will move on to the next film. Dino's is a bit long. I'm going to read it quickly. It's an awesome comment, though. He says, I finally started my rewatch of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise last night with the original A Nightmare on Elm Street 1984. It had been a few years since I last watched the film, so I was eager to revisit what is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. The first thing that struck me was how many parallels there were between this film and Scream. First, in both films, the killer was created as a result of mistakes made by the parent or parents of the high school teens being targeted. Second, you have the early head fake with the perceived leading lady getting killed off in spectacular fashion shortly into the film. Next, there are a handful of scenes that remind me of scenes in Scream. There's one early on, for example, with Tina, Nancy, Rod, and Glenn walking into school and talking about their nightmares that reminded me of the scene early in Scream when Sidney, Tatum, Billy, Stu, and Randy are sitting outside the school discussing Casey's murder. Also, the adults and police in both films are portrayed as incompetent and unable to help in the situation. Admittedly, that last one is a theme that shows up in a lot of horror movies, just like the final girl trope that's present in both films. But it's easy to see that the same mind behind both 
Let's see. But it's easy to see that the same mind was behind both films, and Craven's work on Nightmare was likely a major influence on Scream. A Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. In fact, I have it as number two on my scariest movies ever list. For me, there are three things that combine to make it such an effective horror movie. Number one, a strong premise. Number two, Freddy Krueger. And number three, Freddy's nursery rhyme. You know, I cannot agree with you on number three. <laughs> but let's let's proceed. Yeah. The premise has already been discussed in depth, both on the show and on the comment board, so I won't say much about it here. But it is strong, rooted in reality, and absolutely terrifying. Next, the strength of Freddy Krueger, the horror icon, has also been well discussed. Everything from his character design to his backstory make for arguably the most terrifying monster ever recorded on film. You have the iconic silhouette and sweater, his horribly burned skin, and the glove. The Freddy glove is genius. There's something more personal about killing with a stabbing instrument. But that's taken to a whole new level when the stabbing instrument is your actual hand. Then you have his mode of attack, going after children in their nightmares and feeding off their fear. He really stalks and torments his chosen targets too, torturing them in both physical and psychological ways. Those are strong enough characteristics on their own, but his backstory is what really makes his character so terrifying. Like Fritz said in the comments, Fred Krueger, the mortal man, was already a monster. The effectiveness of Freddy Krueger as a horror character was so tangible and formidable that it pervaded all of pop culture. The third element, the Freddy nursery rhyme, might seem like an unusual thing to mention as one of the three elements that make Nightmare such a scary movie, but it is effective in ramping up the horror on many levels. First, when you're taking a well-known nursery rhyme, one that many of us probably sang and jumped rope to when we were kids, and change it ever so slightly, that makes it sound slightly off to our well-trained ears, which is very off-putting. Second, the actual lyrics to the Freddy Nursery Rhyme are rather disturbing, particularly particularly the 9-10 Never Sleep Again. It really speaks to the hopelessness and inevitability of the situation. And the dream sequences with the Nursery Rhyme disturb me greatly. Little children in horror freak me out. Four of my five scariest movies of all time feature scary little girls, and the nonchalant way they jump rope while singing the Freddy Nursery Rhyme is very troubling. The cherry on top is that it's a catchy rhyme, like Freddy himself, pervaded all of pop culture, following us even outside the film. It doesn't matter if you've seen Nightmare or not. Chances are you know the Freddy nursery rhyme. I think these three elements combined to form a strong foundation to one of the scariest movies ever made. Dino, I'll protect you from little girls. (laughs) I I think actually one thing we didn't talk about in the remake is I love how we finally have a reason for the little girls. Because even though I think the little girls are haunting i guess they're also so overused at this point that when you revisit them at this in the modern time it's not to me not that scary like it's just it feels like cliche. yeah it feels like lip service that they're putting it in but i do think it's awesome in the remake because it ties it to no like these are these characters when they were kids singing this song and it's a song that they sang while they were playing hide and seek with Freddie himself, like that takes it up 20 notches for me. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's good, good writing. That's a good point. That's a good point. I like that, Josh. I hadn't thought of that, to be honest. I just wanted to share. He also talks about the poster being iconic, but I didn't want to share his personal note. He says, on a personal note, Nightmare was the first one of the first horror movies I ever saw, but I didn't like it that much when I first watched it because the movie scared me too much. It wasn't until I was older that I rewatched the film and came to appreciate it as a great horror movie. I do have some nostalgic fondness for it, 
my appreciation for the film originates from the three foundational elements that I mentioned above. So thank you, Dean. Yep. Excellent. Wow. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, that was a long one. I only have two comments for part two. Who wants to read them? <laughs> I'll I'll take one. Okay. Well, you okay. I just wanted to tell people these are, you know, from our same listeners a lot of the time because not everyone's comments were formulated um, in kind of a review fashion. So, uh, Dave, why don't you go ahead and read Sal's, and then I will send one from Dino to Jay. Okay. From Sal. Yep. Okay. Uh, a theory I have on A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Freddy's Revenge does not have Freddy in it. I find that there's even some pieces of evidence to prove that, too. First off, Freddy's face looks differently than it would in any other movie. I do really like the look, though. It's a lot more gross-looking of a face. Then you have Freddy never using his glove. Instead, his knives are just coming out of his fingers as claws. Freddy acts differently as well. He no longer has any cute one-liners, even if the original film didn't have a lot. But he also didn't toy with his victims at all. Even with the more serious tone the original had compared to the se- even with the more serious tone the originals had compared to the sequels, Freddy still loved to freak out his victims. Lastly, for whatever reason, Freddy needed to use Jesse to kill others. Why is it that Freddy couldn't kill anyone himself? The simple reason is because it's not Freddy. In fact, all of these discrepancies between this Freddy and the real Freddy points to the fact that Jesse doesn't know what what all Freddy really does. How would Jesse know that he toys with his victims? What about his burned face, looking differently than it does in the original? Jesse tries to create his own Freddy, but he just didn't have enough knowledge to make a flawless Kruger. Chances are Jesse found Nancy's diary before Lisa did, and hearing about these tales caused Jesse to create this dollar store version of Freddy in his head. Instead, it's all just Jesse and his Carrie-like telekinetic powers killing people due to his internal struggle with being gay. I've never cared much for this movie. Unlike Dream Master and Gene Child, it doesn't even have the appeal of watching a Freddy film that seemingly matters. With Jesse not having any ties to Freddy's death and the fact that they never acknowledge the events of this film in the subsequent films, I really don't see there being much of a reason to watch this one. It it doesn't feel right, and it feels more like a cheap knockoff version of a nightmare film. Frankly, if you take away the not-so-subtle gay subtext, and I doubt anyone would be talking about this movie all of these years later. Now, if I was going to praise the film, it would be for the opening nightmare with Jesse and the random two girls on the bus. That is actually one of my earliest memories of watching a horror movie. Back when I was, well, that was actually one of my earliest memories of watching a horror movie back when I was a wee lad. There's some legitimate horror to it because when you're a kid, you put so much faith in your bus drivers, despite not knowing a single thing about them. There's even times when you have a sub driving the bus, so you just so you're literally just putting your safety into the hands of someone you've never met before. Bit of an interesting concept, seeing his parents hit you over the head with the warnings of never accepting rides from strangers. While it's not the worst nightmare that Hunter belongs to Freddy's dead, it's one of my least favorite to watch. Hmm. Yep. Nice. Okay. What do you guys think about that theory? That it's interesting, and you know, I mean, I they don't. I don't know that they give you, um, I don't know that they, that was, you know, I don't know whether that's within the movie or not, um, but he's absolutely right. If it was, it would explain a lot of things. 
There's very little evidence to work on. I think it's a right. cool idea. It I, is. It's a cool. It's it's a very it's yeah. a very cool concept. You know, and and it would be. I just don't know that the movie itself lends it lends itself to that. But I think it is a. It's a. It's very interesting. <laughs> I, I, I told uh, Sal in the comments. You know, it makes sense, except none of it is spoken, seen, or hinted at in the film. So right. you know, I, I do love it, and I think it's actually a better movie. I just don't see it like in terms of the you know uh-huh. evidence we have to work with, but. I don't know. Pretty cool. Pretty cool theory. So so this is this is totally out of sequence, but this is what I do. You know, like um, I got a (laughs) I got a quick question from Graham who who asks about a cat on the poster. (laughs) I I love this. I just want to see what you think about this. He says, Graham writes, "Can you please try to explain the fat cat in the Hawaiian T-shirt on a trolley?" It's on the poster in the sleep lab when the doctor is the doctor is talking to Nancy's mom. <laughs> I don't. No. I I cannot explain that actually. Oh, do do you guys have any ideas on that one? I don't know. That's no. the, the production designer having some fun with the set. Well, I do have a theory. Since it is a sleep lab, you know, presumably they probably want people to dream in a sleep lab, and so if they fall asleep looking at some weirdness like that then it may actually spur them to dream about creative things. There you go, Graham. That's the answer. Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Right? Yeah. I'm sure. Kidding. Jay, do you want to check out or uh, read At D- Dino's? D- Dino's, yeah. yes. He says, Freddy's Revenge. I watched it last night, and I got to say, I didn't think it was a horrible movie. I've only seen it once before, and my memory of it was not very fond, so maybe my expectations were set very, very low. But honestly, I didn't think it was too bad, and actually wonder why there's so much backlash against it. Yeah, Dino, me too. The only reason I could think of is that it's not a normal Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Instead of stalking and killing teens in their sleep, he's targeting a single person and not hunting him, but attempting to ally himself or is that pronounced a lie in this when it's a verb like this? Mm. I don't know. <clears throat> With him, sorry, Dino, I'm not as sophisticated as you. Uh, allow him, <laughs> ally with him so he can kill teens in the physical world. In that sense, one of the things that makes the film interesting, that it tries something different, is also its biggest downfall because of the resulting backlash from those wanting the regular Nightmare on Elm Street formula. It can really be seen as the precursor to Freddy versus Jason, though, since Freddy is looking for a surrogate to do his killing in the physical world. Now, that's interesting. I kind of like that that yeah. precursor concept. That yeah. said. Um, so, anyway, we'll leave it at that, because that's uh, kind of a longer comment. But thanks, Dino, for your comment. Appreciate it. What's next, Josh? I've got one more for you uh, for Friday the 13th. Nope, not that not that franchise. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street Part Three: Dream Warriors. Uh, this is one from Sal. Okay, and this is for me. Yes, sir. Nice. Okay, my favorite nightmare film to watch. Back when I came up with my top ten list, I ranked Dream Warriors as being my third favorite horror ever. I find Alice to be a highly underrated final girl in the '80s slasher scene. Everyone, including myself, seems to forget her when mentioning the best ones. 
I can kind of understand why seeing as a nightmare already had two really memorable final girls and Nancy and Kristen. Yeah. One that separates Alice from nearly any other film girl, sorry, any other final girl is that once you get past the fact that the brother and some friends were, sorry, whoa, my, my Skype just like flew down like a 10 lines. Sorry about that. I'm reading it from Skype. Brother and some friends were killed. Her dealings with Freddie bettered her life. When we first meet Alice, uh, she's this very plain and shy girl that can't find her own voice. But over the course of the two movies, she comes out of her shell, manages to stand up to her dad, shacks up with the hot guy, has a baby with said hot guy, etc. In fact, looks-wise, she looks like a completely different person in Dream Child. She went from being plain and quote-unquote ugly in Dream Master to being a total babe in Dream Child. <laughs> <laughs> As a person, she's oddly better off after her dealings with Freddy. Sure, she's lost a lot of people that mattered to her, but she's no longer some weak girl. Nice. That's a good comment. <laughs> I like. I wonder how the ladies of uh, Horror Movie Podcast feel about that comment. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, I've got a comment here from Gray Imp. Gray Imp says, Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, is one of my all-time best is one of the all-time best horror sequels. Love the discussion on this one. I agree with Jay of the Dead about the deaths of Taryn and the Wizard Master. They were brutally sad and showed Freddy's super cruelty. These Dream Warrior scenes were definitely underused, but so, so effective. They really stuck with me as I saw this as a kid. This movie always made me sort of put myself in the place of the kids. Part three and the next two sequels really make us consider what weaknesses we have and how Freddy could delightfully torture us with them. One thing I don't think you guys gave enough time for was the Philip Marionette death scene. Wow, that was amazing, horrifying, excruciating to watch, and technically sound. You combine that with the beautiful stop-motion puppet of Freddy, and you have yourself one of the most unforgettable movie scenes. Good point. Yeah, we did. We we didn't give enough time for that. Thank yeah, you. We really glossed over yes. that. And two other people wanted to chime in about how we glossed over that. Jessica adds, I have to agree with you. I'm surprised nobody talked more about Philip's death. That was some serious special effects magic for the 80s. That actually, yeah. That's actually the scene I remember most from the first time I saw the movie as a toddler. Yes, a toddler. My dad loved scary movies just as much as me and let me watch them with him. That scene absolutely terrified me as a kid, of course. <laughs> that still remains uh. the most poignant moment for me to this day when I recall those movies. And finally, Chris Robo adds, Philip's death also stuck with me. Say this is a young saw this as a youngster as well. I think I can can attribute that to my uneasiness with vein related gore and deaths in horror films. And there was a whole discussion about how difficult it is to watch vein related gore which i had never really considered but that that was interesting <laughs> it really is yeah and then dave you have uh one comment there as well yes i do from uh, red cap jack before i get into that let me, let me say that with with dream warriors the, what i always think of with that movie it, too is that scene with the uh you know with with the with the puppet with yeah, the, with the marionette. we really blew it. We totally yeah, missed that scene. That was that is the one I always think of too. Yeah, and as Absolutely. far as special effects, not just like his death scene, but even the um, what what are they? Stop motion. You uh -huh. know, the Freddy puppet is incredible. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and and just the scene of the kids down there screaming up to him. 
know that they're watching this whole thing play out. <laughs> I, that that right. just works really well. Yeah. Anyway, Red Cap Jack says, uh, enjoyed this episode and also wound up rewatching Dream Warriors on Friday for my own 31 Days of Horror, so it's fresh in my head. Unlike the previous podcast, I do have to admit to a certain nostalgia with this film, as it was in constant rotation on my VCR during the most formative years of my horror watching, and gets uh, filtered through the lens of an 11-year-old boy discovering his own tastes in film, along with Evil Dead 2, Phantasm 2, Return of the Living Dead, Life Force, and the Friday the 13th series. Boy, I blew that one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, but as a 40-year-old adult watching the film again, was a slightly different experience. I still find Freddy to be an interesting character, a gleeful goblin taking great pleasure in the suffering of his victims. I find the setting to be horrifying, and that may come from my own experiences, which seem similar to Matroids in general, if not specifics. I found the acting to be fairly solid and all, and actually thought Taryn's performance was the best when she was in her gowns, as opposed to her bad, bad girl persona. Even the mythology felt a little more solid though it felt a little like a nod to the hammer slash amicus style of horror from the 60s in building the monster. Where the, mo- what the, where the movie lacked, in my opinion, was with the pacing. It felt a little rushed. It felt a little off. And I can't help but wonder what the film might have been in a different set of hands. Kincaid is still an awesome character, though. With that said, I've also read the original Craven script, which goes much deeper and darker into Kruger's motivations and his actual crimes. It's bloodier for certain. And there's some truly sick imagery in the script. The opening scene really resonates with me and eventually found a home of sorts in the opening shots from Martyrs. I think you might want to familiarize yourselves with the script that could have been when you do your uh, your franchise overview. Hmm. Nope. <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't get a chance to do that no, either, wait, unfortunately. Sorry about that. Yeah, we, had, we had a few requests like that that we just... Uh, did not have time for so we do apologize. Yeah, we basically yeah. sucked on that. So, sorry. Sorry, Red Cap Jack. That was Red Cap Jack, right? Yep. Yes, it was. I like that comment a lot, Absolutely. Though. Seriously. Yep. Okay. Uh, speaking of, so, can I fit in two, two little comments you here? You Because these are, um, these meant a lot to me. So, I just wanted to say that, and this is kind of interesting. This this first one comes from Lydia the Strange. I just want to read an excerpt here because we're talking about Wes Craven lately. And um, she said, Thank you for giving such a great tribute to one of my favorite horror icons. Wes Craven has made some incredible movies, and it is to him, as well as George Romero, that I am eternally grateful for giving me the best nightmares I have ever had. And uh, I thought that was great. She she wrote a lot of other other nice things about the podcast too. But I wanted to thank Lydia for that. Nice. And then and then this is honestly this is one of maybe my most favorite comments that we've ever received. I think it's just incredible. It, it kind of blew my mind, and I'm not even just saying that either. This is a serious comment. Um, I. It was emailed in, okay? So I do not know that I have this person's permission to read this because maybe it's personal. So I'm going to give this person out of respect, you know, because it, it does have some some very, you know, uh, sensitive matters in it. And, and But it seems to be for the community. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give this person an alias name. What, what, what should it be? How about... Uh, sorry, I was going to go with Freddy, but that's probably not the best. 
Um, oh. How about Nancy? Nancy. Well, uh, it's a male, so let's. Okay. I should. I should. I should have said that earlier. So. <laughs> how about John? For John Doe. Okay. Okay. Is John a very scary name, though? I want to give a tough horror name. Sorry. Oh, it's got to be scary. Yeah. Good let's, Lord, Jay. Let's yes, make it. <laughs> how about John's just throwing two out? You... How about John of the Dead? Oh, I love that. Okay. There we go. This is um John of the Dead. And uh, John of the Dead, if you actually want us to, uh, you know, put your name out there and everything, then let, let me know. But I, I try to be respectful to our listeners, of course. So John of the Dead writes, hello, guys. I wanted to thank you for putting out the best, most informative show out there. I've been listening for just about a year now. The recent review of the Nightmare franchise has prompted me to finally write to you guys. I've just started to become active on the HMP forum after all this time, and I felt like I have a story to share. First off, the Nightmare franchise is my least favorite of the big four, with Halloween being my favorite and Carpenter's film being my all-time number one. But the franchise holds many great memories for me. I was born in 1985, and as I have hit the big 3-0, I've become very sentimental about stories such as these. When I was younger, my older cousin would babysit me. His guy was Freddy, and he terrified me with his store-bought glove to no end. One night in 1990, my parents uh, leave me, and he assures them that no Elm Street films will follow. Door shuts, car leaves, boom. New Line Cinema logo on the screen as I stare at the VHS cover and wait for the impending doom. I was terrified while my cousin cackled away. Not before long... We both heard a scratching sound. I thought it was him, which he denied, (laughs) and went to investigate. Lo and behold, our search of the sound led us to my basement, the furnace, and there was nothing to be seen. I turn around and find my cousin, dresses in full Freddy sweater, hat and glove, I screamed so loud, I'm (laughs) pretty sure the neighborhood heard it. Wow. After I calmed down, we laughed about it, went upstairs, we reached the top of the steps, and as we closed the door, we both heard the faint, subtle sounds of scratching again. Terrified, we finished the film, and Freddy was forever etched in my mind. As I write this, my older cousin is no longer his former self, having fallen down the path of addiction. I don't have many fond memories with him after that, but this will forever make me smile. As I grew up and did my homework on all things horror, life was grand, filled with horror conventions, thrill-seeking, amazing friends, etc. Then I fell on tough times and fell into my own self-destructive addictions. I became addicted to heroin. It, let's see, um, for up to a year of my life until I decided to change things. One night, while feeling miserable, depressed, and thinking about going back to my old ways, I discovered Horror Movie Podcast. I was hooked. Intelligent conversations and incredible recommendations done with professionalism like no other. I felt like I was sitting in on a conversation with friends. That night, I must have listened to three or four episodes. I wrote down six or seven movies to check out. (laughs) got mad at Jay for his Halloween rating, (laughs) and looked into podcasting myself. I found something that filled the terrible void. 
And I now guest host occasionally on my friend's show a few times a month, and I'm in the process of putting out my own show, putting it together. None of this would have been possible if I hadn't hit play and heard the opening chords to HMP. So here I am, one and a half years later, drug-free, managing one of the only Suncoast videos left in the country. I work at a movie store in 2015. How cool is that? And I'm back in the saddle. When people ask me for recommendations, I tell them to listen to Horror Movie Podcast, where they're dead serious about horror movies. Yes! Thanks, that is all, that's thanks again, excellent. guys. And he says, he closes with, Sometimes strangers can help save strangers without even knowing it. Awesome. Wow. That blew, that's that's that blew, awesome. Yeah, and I and I hope mind. he does. I hope he does give because it would be great to to when he does have uh, put out the show to uh, let everybody know what it is. Yeah, John you know? of the Dead. Here's the thing. I'm going to tell you right now. Let me know if you need help with your podcast. I can help you. Reach out to me. Horror movie podcast at gmail and uh, when your show is launched, let us know. We'll promote it big time, brother. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you're doing great, but I know some people who actually deal with uh, drug addiction counseling. So if you need anybody to talk to there, drop me a line there as well. All right. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for writing. And that's uh, John of the Dead. He's the man. Okay. Awesome. All right, Josh, where are we now in this Okay, where are we right now in this? Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Let's I see. have no idea. Was... We are almost done with part four. Okay. There's only one comment in part five. <laughs> All right. We're going to hustle right through part six and seven, and then we're going to be close to the end. Okay, well, right. let, let's get her done because we got to get have Dr. Shock to bed. Have we done any part All fours right. yet? I don't even know where we are in part four. Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we were, I think we were talking about, but it's part four. So really do we need to like, (laughs) we love our listeners and we want to hear their, we want to hear their feedback and we want to encourage more great feedback like this. If you don't like Sal's comments, (laughs) then (laughs) write your own. Here's one from Sal. (laughs) Sal writes amazing comments. Sal writes a lot. Sal should be a blogger. Yes, Yes, Sal. Seriously. Absolutely. Sal says, the biggest flaw of Dream Master was the killing of the Dream Warrior survivors. It feels a bit of a slap in the face to take these three characters that we grew to love in the previous film and then kill them off so quickly and unremarkably in the next movie. Would it have really hurt to have Alice have a crush on Joey instead of Dan? We could have had far more scenes with Joey since we already had an emotional investment with him instead of the personality to avoid Dan. That's a great point. The fact that they found a new Kristen only further increased this annoyance. Just like Halloween 6, it feels cheap to kill off a beloved character without the right actress. Since I brought up the theory of Freddy not being real in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, it did make me realize that in both Nightmare 4 and 5, Freddy represents the main fears that the characters have, which is a great point. Yeah. It's not to say I believe Freddy doesn't exist in A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or 5, but if you're one of the three survivors of Dream Warriors, what would be your biggest fear? Freddy coming back. In Dream Master, what would be Alice's greatest fear? Her brother leaving and being left alone with her father. In the next movie, her biggest fear is what any woman carrying a child is going to fear. Something is deadly wrong with the baby. If you wanted to create a uh, really out there theory, you could say that Freddy doesn't exist in Nightmare 4 and 5, and these are really just warped delusions of a nutcase experiencing the worst nightmares come to life. You see it a good amount with various 
um, psychological thrillers where at the end it revealed that the entire movie was mostly just in someone's head. Same concept. Again, I'm not saying this is what really happens in these two films and don't even buy into the potential of this theory possibly being true with Freddy's Revenge. It's just a wacky theory that I find interesting and it makes watching them for the millionth time a little different. Sometimes it's fun to look at a movie with a different perspective if you're so used to watching it normally, which is a really good point. I like that. Yep. Yes, I do too. Um, and that was a great note about the, the, the script fix there. That would have been helpful. I only have one comment on part five, and it's Sal again. So, Sal, we're just going to skip part five. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sal. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> um, I do have a comment from Red Cap Jack on part six, and I am going to pass that off to one of you who would like to read that. That's, I can do it. It's fine. Okay. Here it comes. It's coming at you. Here it go. It's coming. Here it goes. All right. <laughs> I'm gonna try to do a better job this time around for you. Yeah, they're gonna that they're gonna love this uh, not non-edited episode. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like so much more nervous than on my toes about this. <laughs> right. Red Cap Jack. He talks of Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare. This movie was god awful, but it was so strange and it was such a time capsule that I have to recommend it to just about anyone who may be curious about the franchise. It has such a strange vibe to it. Everything about this movie just felt like a marketing gimmick, giving Freddy a daughter, the retcon to his original, to his origin story, the 3D, the cameo appearances, the title, and all the little pop culture references just swarmed up together to build a hot mess of a film. An odd aspect to the making of the film is that the original script was tossed out by the director, and they had to rewrite a bunch of it to abide by her vision of how the story would play out. We were originally going to have Freddy kill Alice and would then be followed then would, and would then be following the character of Jacob through much of the film. And if John Doe had been Jacob, that might have worked to build an interesting point in the franchise. But we didn't get that film and we instead wound up with this film, which makes me wonder what the director thought she was going to bring to the table. Yeah. What did she think? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. She'd been a producer on the previous films, and she'd been a producer for John Waters. And I just think she thought, "Hey, if somebody's going to do it, why not me?" I know, but seriously, uh, and I guess we found out why. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I, I like that. Okay, I got one from Susan here. Is this the, one, the next one? Josh? Yeah, this is. We're moving into part seven now. New Nightmare. Yes, now you're talking. Okay, Susan says, I enjoyed New Nightmare. The fear from many horror movies doesn't last with me. Cabin in the Woods, I don't camp. Hostel, nope. <laughs> At least a three-star hotel for me. Nightmare, <laughs> nope, not a teen, and don't live on Elm Street. But New Nightmare left that place. I followed the actors to their quote-unquote real lives, they had just been doing their job when they became part of it. What have I done or will do that might unknowingly open me up to that situation? Same thing with Jaws. I've swum in the ocean, in the ocean. The Exorcist, I have a daughter. The more mundane and normal the people and situation, the longer it will stay with me. That's so true because you know why? horror happens in the daylight it does it yeah. does all the time yep. you just look at the news it happens yep. 
Excellent, Susan. Thank you. Thanks, Susan. And I've got one here from Red Cap Jack, which is a great comment. He says, full disclosure, I hated this film when it came out. I also graduated <laughs> the year it came out, but I absolutely hated the movie and have not seen it since its theatrical release. And I did all I could to avoid it since then. But as Wheeler was quick to mention, you buy one and you likely end up buying them all, <laughs> which is extremely <laughs> true in my case. Absolutely. A, a side note. I literally only bought the first film and wound up with digital copies of the entire series through the voodoo system. Similar. Now that's voodoo. The, uh, <laughs> the no. online uh, video distribution. The V-U-D-U. No, yeah, he's not. talking about <laughs> poking dolls with needles. And he got the digital downloads for all these. Yeah. Uh, similar situation with the Friday the 13th series that I bought in a four pack and wound up with all the movies except part five, which blah, 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 blah. Okay. I watched this movie only because I wanted to be able to file fire with both barrels on the podcast. I was going to rip this movie a new one. And then I found myself being afraid. I was scared throughout the run of this movie. I forgot about the franchise and focused only on the film itself, which works as a standalone film in a way I hadn't remembered. Nice. Frankly, it was, I was flat out terrified and asked my wife to come into the room so she could hold my hand. I'm not even kidding about that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. New nightmare. Yes. The movie was really upsetting to me. There were points I didn't like, but the movie really worked for me and I was seriously impressed. I did think Freddy himself was the least effective part of the film, as usual. I'd even go so far. Oh, sorry. I'd even go far enough to say that this real isn't really the Freddy from the other movies in the franchise. And it's as different as having an EMT driver put on a hockey mask. Sure, Robert England is still the same, but the mannerisms are different. The costume is way different. And the whole execution of the character is even meant to be something else. Which, by the way, is a tribute to Robert England's talent. Yes. Side note. Yes. Good point. But the atmosphere of the film, the presence of this entity, the haunting of the people who made the first film, the sense of how this film would uh, intrude on their lives, the questions from the press, the whole thing just snowballing, and that performance from the child actor really just nailed it home for me. But while I thought Freddy wasn't the best part of the film, that scene where he kills the babysitter is absolutely amazing. England was purely vicious in the scene, purely horrifying, and much closer to what he was in the rest of the franchise. He was taunting that child, doing what he was doing to tease and cajole the child into running off. Very well done. Thank yes. you, Redcap Jack. Great yep. comment. I love Absolutely. that one. And then we've just got one more on this film from Sal. Dave, you've got that one. I do. This is from Sal. Scare-wise, New Nightmare is likely the most believable in terms of scares. The scares in this one doesn't just come from the supernatural, but rather real events. For example, Nancy deals with a stalker, something that unfortunately plenty of actors and non-celebs have had to deal with. There's also something interesting at play when it comes to the actors and filmmakers that have their lives uh, still influenced and affected by Freddy after all these years. This little film made a decade ago likely exceeded all of their expectations for creating a legacy. Chances are there's actors in various movies that later aren't so proud of their work or wish they had never been a part of it. For Nancy, it was gaining some mild fame that caused her to get a stalker, to create a film that she doesn't want her son to see, and to keep getting hounded to talk about the films rather than being allowed to move on. Maybe all of that isn't scary, but it does shine a light on the fact that what you do today in your life can stick with you for years to come. 
Nice. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. So we're just winding down our coverage now because we obviously don't have comments on these last films we've discussed. But we had a couple of kind of overview kind of questions that I wanted to talk to you guys about or comments. Um, the first one was from Damien, and this is not something that we did on the show, but I don't know if either of you guys had a chance to watch it. I really intended to, but did not have time. Damien asks, is there any chance you might be able to include for the Freddy Krueger origin story, No More Mr. Nice Guy, episode one from Freddy, Freddy's Nightmares, directed by Toby Hooper? For the retrospective, I know Robert England thinks highly of that episode. Yeah, I wanted um, to bummer, like darn yeah, it. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get to it, but Willis did discuss it in one of our episodes. He he addressed it a yeah. little bit. We we touched on it for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There. There's one thing I wanted to recommend though. I am going to check it out, and maybe I'll write my review in the comments um, of this episode when I do. And I'd love to hear from any of our listeners that have seen it and like it as well. But um, there is one video online that I really enjoyed, you guys. It is called Freddy's Origins, The Beginning. And it's just a video that someone put together on YouTube. But it's a lot of fun. Basically, someone took all of the moments portraying origin stories of Freddy Krueger from all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, including the remake, and from Freddy's Nightmares, and cut them all together into like an 18-minute video and it's awesome like it's really fun to watch if you are into the freddy origin story which i am um i'd recommend it this is uh on youtube under the username playa tv p-l-a-y-a tv um and again the video is just called freddy's origins the beginning and we can put a link to it in the show notes but it's totally fun watch if you're into the freddy origin story and it's fun to see the mix and match all of these different disparate films into one kind of solidified origin. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. And then the other comment here is from Dino and I, and we, we love Dino and we know he's a big fan of this franchise. And so I wanted to read kind of his overview thoughts. Okay. Dino said, generally speaking, I've been very pleasantly surprised by my rewatch of the nightmare on Elm street franchise. Sure. Some of these films were subpar and suffered in their over the topness. Sure. Freddie becomes a caricature of himself in the latter films. Sure. The series seemed to stray away from the dark, serious tones that made the original so effective, but these series had a lot going for them. I think Freddie's origin story is among the best, if not the best of any modern horror figure. I think that's also true. The general premise, uh, the series is based on as well as, all discussed at length after the original film is very strong. And it feels like there's more to these films than most other slashers, more layers of context and social commentary to peel back. I would love it if there was a talented filmmaker who happened to be a Nightmare on Elm Street fan and wanted to take on a reboot of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise as his or her passion project. A solid three-plus film run with quality writing, cinematography, effects, acting direction, etc., using the Freddy monster in the original film's strong premise would be sublime. Like Juan suggested uh, a week or so ago, having Guillermo del Toro's visual flair attached to the dreamscapes would be amazing. I can hope for it, but the hope will probably just die in my dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Well, we'll see what happens with this reboot, right? I mean, yeah, cross your fingers, but yeah, don't hold your breath. (laughs) Okay. Yep, and so yeah, that's that's kind of the last comment. There was another one here, but I failed to write down the person's name. So, um, 
they're basically saying the opposite, how bad they hate this franchise. Mythology's all over the place. They're not scary or interesting. <laughs> so we weren't <laughs> alone in our criticisms, and I think we're actually pretty fair to the films. I feel good about our coverage, guys. Yeah, I mean, I yep. feel like we were fair, at least. I, I hope uh-huh. so. You know, it's it's hard. I mean, here's the thing. There's no such thing as... um you know, a critic without bias, right? I mean, we Absolutely. just, right. we approach yeah, the yeah, film and, and it's our subjective opinion, but I was grateful to hear everybody's opinion there. And thanks for all of your contributions, everybody. Here's what we're going to do. It's going to tell you the the final plans here as we start to wrap up the show. We do have a couple of surprises left for you to celebrate Halloween. But first I want to say this, we are going to be dropping down to a, a bi-weekly schedule for the rest of this year, at least so next Friday, we actually will have another episode that will be our cannibal-themed episode. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah, so um, we're really excited about that. We're going to be talking about The Green Inferno, among other films. So make sure you get that next Friday. And then after that, it's going to be every other Friday again, because basically, I just need a little bit of a, a breather here as we close out the year. We got to prepare for our end of the year show where we do the top 10 best horror flicks of the year and our final show of 2015 and i'm just saying the final show of this year not final show ever but of 2015 will release on uh new year's eve which is a thursday because i want you to be able to have that for your um you know your new year's celebrations because it's super fun it's my favorite kind of a show but yeah we're gonna be bi-weekly that means every other friday um, after next week's cannibal episode. So join us for that. And then will we go back to weekly? Um, I don't know. We'll just see how it goes. Uh, we, we want to make sure that this podcast survives and that I don't burn myself out. So (laughs) that's what we're doing. And, um, uh, Josh, I believe you have some drawing here for the nightmare franchise, right? Yeah, we actually had two drawings during this franchise review. There was supposed to be a third one, but I missed an episode. And guys, I forgot what one of the contests was. So I really (laughs) apologize, but I didn't have time to re-listen to the episodes. And I looked through the show notes and couldn't find figure out what it was. So if you guys know, please remind me, and we will definitely give it away in our next Frankensteinian episode. It's really unprofessional. I apologize. Obviously, the big one, though, is the Dawkins 7-inch single for Dream Warrior. And, um, <laughs> you know, this was interesting because the day that we recorded, um, I got a text from our good friend Juan. And Juan said, hey, guys, I ordered a Dawkins 7-inch and they sent me two. I have an extra one. If you want, you can give it away on the show. And I said, that's funny because I just promised to give one away on the show. Oh, so, wow. nice. you guys, you know, usually we're footing the bill for these gifts, but this is all Juan. The so, courtesy of Juan. Buddy, yep. thank you so much for doing that. That's very generous of you to do that. Absolutely. And we will do a drawing for the listener. This listener needs to send your mailing address to J at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. And then we will get that to Juan and he will ship out his additional docking. Seven inch, which I will put a photograph of that in the show notes. They are amazing. They're beautiful. So let me just reach into the listener hat here. All right. Select a name. 
I love it that we actually draw names out of a hat. We are so legit. (laughs) (laughs) And the Dokken, rockin' with Dokken, seven inch of Dream Warriors goes to, is this right? Professor Headbutt. (laughs) So... Professor Headbutt. Yeah, I guess that I have missed that name during the comments, but Professor Headbutt, you just won. So send your contact info to Jay at horrormoviepodcast.gmail.com, and Juan will ship that out to you from sunny San Antonio, Texas. Yes, and Professor Headbutt, do me a favor and put your name, Professor Headbutt, in the subject line of the email so it stands out (laughs) to me, because you know that will. Yeah. That is great. Okay, thank you. Was there uh, was there another drawing, or are we still waiting to find well, out what again, that was? I can't remember what the other one was. And then I was going to give away a Freddy Krueger reaction figure um, on the last episode, but I wasn't here for it. So, well, um, can we just send that to um, John of the Dead for that freaking awesome comment that he wrote? We've got John of the Dead's email or yeah, mail address. Yeah, I'll send him the. Uh, the, the reaction figure? The reaction figure, yeah. Yeah, because I, I love Unless it. that's the reason I had it was because I had promised to give it away at the other drawing. So, guys, check me on that. I apologize for being so flaky about that. Okay, well, I'll just draw out John of the Dead's name. So Okay. Uh, <laughs> there you go. All right, and uh, as far as the surprise, which we mentioned, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do our regular outro stuff with our plugs, but if you stick around after the you know the music and stuff ends on this podcast then we're gonna get we have a couple of uh, campfire tales right that are provided by the listeners i'm really excited about that nice and then i had a really fun interview with ron martin who is a big horror convention guy and he got to meet a lot like actually most all of the major players at um the various <laughs> actors in the franchise for Nightmare on Elm Street. So I, I talked to him a little bit about that, and it's very free-form, free-flowing, and Ron's very funny when he tells these stories. So if you stick around after the credits, you're going to hear Campfire Tales and Ron Martin, and that's our little Halloween gift to you. So um, anyway, before we get to that, I think that just about wraps up our franchise coverage of A Nightmare on Elm Street. That's episode 74 here. We hope you have enjoyed it. And just want to thank my good friends, Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock for being here. And Dr. Shock, where can the listeners catch up with you on the internet? Uh, Same place as always, dvdinfatuation.com, where I'm writing a movie review a day. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm a couple days away right now from 1900. So it's another little milestone there. That's awesome, man. Nice. Thanks. I'm getting getting closer. Um, then uh, on Twitter, at DVD Infatuation. Uh, the Facebook page, follow it through, um, through the show notes. And um, over on Land of the Creeps, uh, for our Halloween episode, we took a look at uh, some of the Sleepy Hollow films, including Sleepy Hollow by Tim Burton, uh, and also spoke briefly about uh, even the Disney version nice. you know, from, uh, from 1949. Um, and while I did not make this part of the review, uh, Greg and uh, Jesse uh, went into the um, uh, Jeff Goldblum made-for-TV movie, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Oh, great. Cool. Okay, that sounds good. What about you, Wolfman Josh? 
Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Icarus Arts, and please do that. Um, you can also listen to my other podcast, the moviestreamcast.com, where I review uh, all kinds of movies in kind of a short form, but we review stuff that's currently streaming online. And for the month of October, we reviewed movies that were not technically horror films, but were kind of spooky Halloween fare anyway. Um, or horror light in a lot of cases. So we did what we do in the shadows and cooties and the guest monster squad and uh, that kind of thing. We just, I just did um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein with my four year old son. Nice. That was a lot of fun. So head over to moviestreamcast.com to hear those fun Halloween reviews. And I also helped produce the sci-fi podcast. Um, they're doing a lot more on their own. Luckily, these days we're I'm trying to hand over <laughs> the reins, but they're they're picking it up well and they're doing a great job. They had an awesome guest recently. They interviewed Andrew WK um, and that was really cool. I'm not exactly sure when that posts um, for their Halloween coverage. There's a Halloween special show that's posting this week. And then they also covered... Um, the entire Alien franchise with Jay of the Dead here. That's so right. that's that's worth checking out as well. Nah, that's excellent. right. It is. And speaking of other things that you want to check out for Halloween, if you're not getting enough Halloween stuff this weekend, make sure you check out the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast with Ron Martin. He's got some really cool coverage going on for Halloween. Various like true life things that happen on or around Halloween, such as the War of the Worlds broadcast, which I was a guest on. And also check out um, Joel Robertson's Spooky Flicks Fest, which is a part of his Forgotten Flicks Remembers podcast. And so we'll have those linked in the show notes. And of course, we even did a movie podcast weekly Halloween episode for this week. And that is out right now. So make sure you go check that out my friends okay so thank you there we love your comments continue to um leave them on the message boards here or you can email us at um horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com we have a voicemail which is 801-382-8789 and you can find all our past episodes at horrormoviepodcast.com which is also where we have our archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and horror metropolis by the way, this past week on October 25th, we hit our two-year anniversary. We had um, a blog post where we wrote up the history of how this podcast came to be. If you want to check that out. And thank you all. We had a lot of very nice comments on that. I was amazed at the, the response that we got to that. Yes, absolutely. They like you. They really like you. <laughs> it's very nice. <laughs> um, you can subscribe to the show free in iTunes. And if you do that, you won't miss any exciting stuff that we release because i know our release schedule is a little crazy sometimes and follow us on twitter at horror movie cast i want to thank fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more of fred's music at frederickingram.com i'll have it in the show notes and i just want to thank um two people here real quick josh legary wolfman josh for all of the great artwork that he provides for this podcast um, if you notice that our artwork does not suck anymore, it's because I'm not doing it anymore. It's because Josh does it. So thank you for doing that, Josh. You Definitely. make a big difference. Absolutely. Oh, thanks, man. And I want to thank Dr. Shock for his incredible 31 days of Halloween coverage. Josh and I wrote one review a week over the past uh, five weeks or so. 
But um, Dr. Shock has been carrying the load, and I appreciate that. It was very cool, Doc. So to speak, yep. <clears throat> Not a problem, yep. That's right. So I think Dave is amazing. Like it, this, honestly, this gave me so much more appreciation. I, I was already impressed by what you do, but being put in the position <laughs> to actually write a blog, it's like, oh, this is hard. I, and I was only doing one a week. Like, yeah. I don't have time to do this. This is. How do you well, do it? I appreciate it. It's it's not always easy, but um, hey, I'm committed at this point. That's what you know? he does. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's he's a machine. So. Anyway, I think that's it for episode 74. We thank you for listening and uh, join us again next Friday for our cannibal episode of Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Happy Halloween. We had a segment we entitled Campfire Tales a while back where listeners send us in their kind of personal stories and we read them as though we were sitting around a, a nice crackling campfire at night. And... I, you know, I started thinking about doing this again when I saw this awesome comment from Juan. Juan was putting forth a theory, and I, but it kind of got me excited about doing Campfire Tales again. And this is what Juan says. He says, There was a Campfire theory that was brought up during the Friday the 13th franchise review that I think also applies to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I like to think of the movies as a series of nightmares that were passed down from high school kid to high school kid by word of mouth. Each movie is that particular student's version of the nightmare. That's why they're all so different, but all the same, uh, but at the same time, so similar. It is also why the mythology and the rules change constantly. Sometimes even with the within the same movie, because the movies don't take place in one big dream. It's a concoction of different types of dreams. I may be pushing it, but some of the films even play like an anthology, where the dreams are the individual stories, and the main character's story is the wraparound. And I really liked that one. And that kind of got me thinking about the stories we tell. Now, each of these um, that we're going to read are probably all connected directly to kind of first time viewing experiences of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, uh, which I thought would be fun. But um, yeah, that's where we're going to start. So, Jay, why don't you take it away and read this first one from Red Cap Jack? You got it. Red, Red Cap Jack writes. Sleeping over at a friend's house, we started to tell each other some scary stories. He suddenly hits me with this story about a man who creeps through a girl's dream and ultimately kills her. Scares the living hell out of me. His story was basically the first few minutes of A Nightmare on Elm Street, as I would come to learn a few months later when my mother's friend rented the movie for us one night. And I see the very story that kept me up late at night come to life. I forgave the plagiarism, and my friend and I excitedly watched a few more movies his parents had in their collection when they weren't <laughs> home. Now, years later, I'm much more of a Jason fan than I am a Freddy fan, but I still love the Kruger films and still love the monster that is Freddy Krueger. So I'd like to speak to a few points brought up in the podcast. First, the character of Freddy is horrifying to me, not simply the premise, but the idea of a smaller man, skinny, burned, wearing loose-fitting Christmas sweater and a glove that is scary enough. But it was wrapped up in a character who wasn't just trying to kill his victims, but he was stalking, taunting, mocking, and humiliating them before the kill. 
the scene where he cuts off his own fingers, where he slits his chest. These aren't just gross outs or the killer saying you can't harm me. At least to me, this is a monster touching on nerves, plucking them like a string and enjoying his victims squirming. There's something scary about the unstoppable. There's something downright horrifying about the giddy and eager. Nice. Yeah, I thought that was really well written. Yes. Absolutely. Thanks, Red Cap Jack. Uh, this one is from Scott Waller, and this is another one that hopefully isn't too sensitive to share, but Scott did post it on the message board, so I feel okay about mm-hmm. reading it. Scott said, I was a teenager in the 1980s, and my family lived in a super small town in central Oklahoma, so I watched all horror movies on cable television. My whole family, mom, stepdad, little brothers and sisters, were watching The Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, and during the ambiguously gay bar scene, my little brother pointed at me and said loudly, That's Scott! So much uncomfortable energy... Um, during the rest of the movie, I'm pretty sure I've blocked out the rest of the evening and most of this movie because I was trying not to cry and my parents were trying not to acknowledge the big gay elephant in the room. And my poor little brother was like, what? What? It's true. Everyone says it. I laugh about it now, but at the time, my 16-year-old self was super embarrassed. A way more horror-related Freddy story is the night my whole exhausted family watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street on cable. A bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles came over, and there was popcorn and soda pop and pizza and jump scares and ooze and blechs, and we all had a real great time. We talked about what an amazing and scary film Nightmare on Elm Street is and how much we all loved it, and then everyone went home and we all went to bed. I woke up in the middle of the night and could hear a heartbeat reverberate through my mattress. At that time, I slept laying on my stomach without a pillow. I don't know why, I just did. And hearing a heartbeat in my mattress freaked my freak, as you can imagine. (laughs) That's how Freddy came for you, right up through the mattress or the wall or the mirror or anywhere right after you wake up. The heartbeat was getting faster and faster, and after about 20 terrifying minutes, I finally figured out that I was hearing my own heart. Whew. (laughs) <laughs> to think of it, that might be why I sleep on my side now. That's amazing. <laughs> so that's a great one, Scott. And then, Dave, do you want to read? I got one from Dino here. Yep. yep. Uh, Scott's story reminds me a lot of the first time I watched the original Nightmare on Elm Street. It was Halloween night, 1988. My extended family had gathered at my grandparents' house, as we always did for the holidays. My parents, aunts, and uncles were all hanging out on the main floor while all the grandchildren were crammed in an upstairs bedroom, the one with the TV, decked out in our Halloween costumes. I was seven years old, the youngest of my generation and my extended family. I have one older sister and 24 cousins on that side, so there are 26 of us in total, although not all of us were were there that night. (laughs) I had not seen a real horror movie to that point, at least not that I can remember. Meanwhile, the next closest to me in age was my sister, who was about four years older, So they were all well-versed in the genre. That night would be my christening into the horror genre, with a triple feature of Jason Lives, Friday the 13th, Part 6, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Phantasm. (laughs) Needless to say, I was hooked. And while Jason Lives was certainly the most fun and entertaining of the trio, and Phantasm confused my seven-year-old mind, Nightmare scared the bejesus out of me. I had Nightmares of Freddy for several nights and wouldn't revisit the movie for a a while thereafter because I was too scared. Aww. (laughs) <laughs> awesome, Dino. I love to hear that. 
And we had a lot of other great stories from people that came in. A lot of them had to do with their own nightmare experiences. There were several about sleep paralysis, but we're going to save those for when we actually cover the documentary, The Nightmare, more in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you guys all for sharing those. There were some really creepy stories. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and aren't we going to be having uh, Dr. Nightmare on with us maybe for that that night? Yeah, I, I asked, and, and Dr. Nightmare agreed, so we just need to get that awesome. connection going between you, Jay, and, and him. And Yeah, and he's, he did. He sent me his info, so like oh, we, perfect. we should line that up and uh, get that episode scheduled. That'll probably be in 2016 and next year, oh, but nice. um, that's going to be a good one. A yeah, horror documentaries themed episode. And I've been trying <laughs> to find awesome. other good choices for that, but it, there really aren't that many. Um, and it sent me on my own journey to think, how could I make a horror documentary? And I was really seriously considered trying to follow um, the potential serial killer in Juarez, Mexico. But uh, Rachel, my wife, vetoed that plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a very, very dangerous one. <laughs> yeah, that might be. I gotta tell you, I had I had come across a realization and I don't know if this fits with a um uh with a campfire story, but I, I this is so it just sort of reminded me of this. I was looking through the other day. Um I have this this Excel file that I've been keeping since two thousand two that of, of my movies watched. And what I did was I have almost like a daily journal where I would go out and I'd write down my thoughts. I'd say, okay, this date, I watched this movie. And I had that from about 2002 to about 2009, right around the time I started doing the blog. Uh, Right before I started doing the blog, I stopped doing this. Well, what I did was I then went back because I'm just so anal retentive with all this stuff. I then went back and I wanted to list out the movies by title and see how many times I watched them and on what dates. So I took the next, you know, few, I did this probably around 2007, somewhere around. that. <laughs> I took the next two weeks, listed out all the movies I watched, alphabetized them, and put the dates that I watched them on there. Well, there's a movie um, called uh, 1972. It's a classic called Solaris, directed by Andre Tarkovsky. And awesome. I had gotten that for Christmas of 2002. And you said Solaris, right? Solaris, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, as I'm looking at this, I'm looking at my, you know, this, this spreadsheet I put together and all the dates that I watched it. And I looked and three years in a row, it was three years in a row. I had watched I had watched Solaris on the exact same date. <laughs> I had watched it on, um, I want to say it was December 29th. I'm, I'm just looking it up here. <laughs> Hold on. Let me let me uh, let me let me just look this up if I could real quickly here. Wow. Um, How could that but be? I did. I, and I was just amazed by it that I had seen this movie on the exact same date three years in a row without meaning to. Now, the first year, like I said, it was a Christmas present. So it was um, it, it, it turned out to be uh, here it is. It was in December. It was December 29th. I had seen this movie three times in a row, 2002, 2003, 2004, on December 29th. (laughs) Okay. After I put that in there several years later, and it wasn't right away, I went out and I had to look up something with Tarkovsky. I was looking up some of his movies, so I went to his IMDb page. Do you guys have access to that right now? Yeah. Yeah, let me just Just look in Andre Andre Tarkovsky on IMDb real quick. Okay, you got it. I'm pulling it up here for the listeners. And if you want to do this with us, join along. Like, and and we're talking about the seven 
72 version. Uh, so I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to get his name. Okay, there we go. We got it. I got it pulled up here, buddy. And look down at the bottom. Oh my goodness. He died on December 29th. That's insane. That is crazy. <laughs> yep. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I did not find that out till years later. And three years in a row, I watched that movie on that exact day. Wow. You know, the mind is remarkable. And maybe Dr. Nightmare can help us out with this since he knows so much about the, the brain. But, like, maybe maybe somehow you knew that and maybe it's, that was your little way of celebrating it's very, him. It's very possible. I don't recall ever have going out to his IMDb page prior to that. Like, 2002 was when I was really getting very deep into a lot of this stuff. Right. Um, but like, especially in that, but it's very possible. And you're absolutely right. I may have known that like on a, on a subconscious level, on a subconscious level. Yeah. Yeah. It was not, I did not actively set out to watch it on that day. It was not something that I had thought to do. Um, but I, it's what ended up happening. Um, and (laughs) I was absolutely blown away when I saw that he had died on 20th and a little creeped out too. That's very creepy actually. (laughs) I think that's remarkable. Well done, my friends. Okay, well, listeners, if you want to hear some more Halloween celebrating, we got a little discussion here coming up with Ron Martin, so stick around. Okay, you're still listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. And at this point in this episode, we have a special treat for you. We are joined once again by... Ron Martin, who is the esteemed host of the Resurrection of Zombie 7 Horror Podcast, and we want to welcome you back. Thanks for being here, Ron. It's always a pleasure to be here for you, Jay. All right. Thanks, buddy. Now, um, for those who aren't aware, Ron Martin here is a hardcore, totally legit horror fan who is famous or perhaps even infamous for attending lots of horror conventions. He's the real deal, and he's also a ghost hunter, like for real ghost hunter. Anyway, he recently had a very memorable convention experience that coincides perfectly with our coverage of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise stuff. And so right now, it's just, as we're recording this, it's just Ron and me. We don't have anybody else on the line if you're wondering where my co-hosts have gone, but Ron... Would you take some time and just kind of tell our listeners the awesome experience that you got to have and give us some highlights and some stories, whatever you want? Uh, well, recently, the uh, city of my birth, the place the place that gave us Ron Martin, uh, Indianapolis, hosted a <laughs> well, they host a yearly horror convention called the Horror Hound. Uh, they host several horror conventions. But this particular one, 2015 Horror Hound, the main theme was the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Nice. Um, and I believe... I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I got to say this had to be the largest collection of alumni from a single the, from the from Nightmare on Elm Street franchise collected in one room ever, probably. Because, yeah, I mean, if uh, as far as major characters, you're saying that all of them there were except except for what, a couple or what? What did you tell depends me? Depends on what you consider a major character, I suppose. Um, Johnny Depp wasn't there. Obviously, uh, Patricia Arquette wasn't there and uh, Tuesday night wasn't there. So you, those are I don't know if you would consider Johnny Depp, but uh, the character of Kristen played a large role in the franchise. And neither neither actress that played uh, her was there. And John Saxon wasn't there. Oh, bummer. Okay. But other than that, just about everybody that you would want um, 
to talk to uh, was there. I'm mean, probably about. I purchased a Nightmare on Elm Street metal uh, tin poster. Okay. Because you know the tin isn't going to corrode like a like a like a paper poster would. Right. Uh, to take with me to have everyone sign, and I probably got about I think I ended up with about twenty autographs on it. Oh, that's excellent. So you got to meet a lot of the the actual players, the cast members then. Yeah, yeah. I literally say I like like a thirteen year old kid, I literally saved up money all summer to to do this. Okay. So yeah, and it's expensive just for those who have never Yeah, because for those who have never been there, I mean you gotta pay the the price of attending it, but also like each person whose autograph you get, don't you usually have to give them money in order to get their autograph? Yes, most people are you pay you go pay twenty dollars and they'll they'll sign wherever you I mean that's how they make their money. Right. They're guaranteed a certain amount of income uh, for the weekend, so they show up to, you know, to converse with fans and to, uh, you know, sign memorabilia uh, for fans. But to me, you know, twenty dollars um, is a small price to pay to hang out with Jennifer Rubin for a few minutes, whom I had a huge crush on when I was a kid. <laughs> right. Right. And you. And- uh, for those of you uninitiated, uh, she played. She was the the chick who was beautiful. And bad in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Oh, yeah. And Josh is in love with her. And and as I recall, if I'm not mistaken, I believe we were on one of your podcasts when you shared some very intimate details about your history with Jennifer Rubin. <laughs> yeah. We probably should not get into that. <laughs> oh, that cracks me up. Like, it's so funny. Like, anyways, you're right. You're right about that. For anyone who's not listened to the Resurrection of Lifestone <laughs> podcast, first of all, why have you? And uh, second of all, it's it's R rated for sure. Yeah, you're missing out. So, so uh, okay. Well, well, tell us about some of these exchanges. Come on, we're we're on we're on the edge of our seats here. Um, well, I was really excited about meeting because because like anybody else um, who's a fan of the franchise, my favorite film is the third film. Even though I admit the first film's a better film. Okay. Uh, so I was really excited that almost all of the Dream Warriors were there except for Patricia Arquette. Yeah. Did you did you happen to hear why she wasn't there? Because that is a real bummer. I'm guessing that she she probably is like oh, I don't need to do a convention because I still have a career. Right. Okay. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yes. Okay. Oh no! But all of the uh, Dream Warriors that I met were um, really cool, and everybody. And I'm not the type of person that that as asking take pictures with people but if they say hey do you want a picture i'm always like oh yeah of course i want a picture oh okay so you don't yeah that was the other thing i was going to ask you because yeah i don't go to conventions and honestly the biggest reason is because like i don't really have anything to say to celebrities so what do you say to them when you well for example uh when i talked to uh, jennifer rubin i asked her if she got to keep the costume okay or she's beautiful and bad uh, for the record, she did not get to keep the costume. Oh, okay. Disappointing. That one sucks. Yeah. Did you check her uh, arms to see if she still had those little things, those little mouth things? She had. She had. Uh, she had sleeves on. So. Dang it. I mean, you can only get you can only get, you can only get so personal. Right. Right. That. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean. Uh, I mean, you can't say uh, pull down your pants or anything like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> Uh, a highlight for me was also meeting Kelly Jo Mentor from uh, Number Elm Street Five. Okay, not necessarily because 
Um, she was in Nightmare on Elm Street 5 because that's one of the worst films in the franchise. But more so because she was in a, um, a comedy movie that I like called um, Summer School. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then she played, for those who don't know, she played Yvonne. Correct. She survived. Y- Yvonne. Yeah I, yeah, I think they pronounce it, in the film, they pronounce it Yvonne, right? Even though it looks like it's so. spelled Yvonne. Okay. Um, and she also was in... Uh, Lost Boys? Uh, People Under the Stairs. Oh, okay. And, um... So I, I wanted to get a... I, I made sure I got my picture with her, because I have other friends who are big summer school fans. So I've been... Uh, about every third day, I send them the picture of me and Kelly Jo Mentor together, just so they remember that I met her and that they didn't. Right. Because <laughs> that's what you do. Okay. Correct. Elephant in the room. I mean, tell us about Robert England. What do, you, what do you think of him? Okay, let me tell you this. Robert England is the hardest I've ever had to work to get an autograph in my life. Really? Why, why is, is that? Well, he was in Indianapolis, uh, not 2014, but 2013. Okay. It was his first ever appearance in indianapolis so i live about an hour away from indianapolis i wake up like you know nine o'clock i plan on getting there by the time the convention opens at 11 i'm gonna meet robert england he's gonna sign uh my my nightmare on elm street um box set um i wake up to a a text message from a friend of mine who's already up there saying uh, uh don't rush robert england's already sold out for the weekend wow so with some with some celebrities like robert england um, they have to, you have to get a ticket just to meet, just to be in line to meet him <laughs> because he has so many people waiting to meet him. Yeah. And I will say he was one of the last people to sign my, uh, my poster, but I was going to make sure that he signed it because there's no point in having the poster if you don't have his signature. Yes. And didn't you tell me that they were saving room for him? Actually, they were saving room yes, for. Every, correct. Every person I went to, uh, from the movies before I met him was like, has Robert signed this yet? And uh, we're going to save the space right up here next to his head so he can sign. They all deferred to him. Yeah, of course. Well, he's Makes friends. Sense. Yeah, without him, they don't, they, don't, they don't have the movie, right? Exactly. That's right. Plus, he would haunt them in their dreams and kill them at night. <laughs> so this time, I'm like, got to get Robert in his autograph, get up super early, like 7.30 in the morning, which is super early for me. I'm a bartender, so that's really early for me. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Uh, drive up to Indy with a friend of mine. Um, we get in this huge line, which I figure is just a line to, to buy tickets to get into the or to get into the convention. And as the line starts moving, uh, no, it's just tickets. It's just a line to get a ticket to come back later to get in line to meet Robert England. Wow. So we had a ticket for like two thirty or something, but you can come back anytime afterwards. We came back like a four. There's this huge line. It's barely moving. Uh, at, at some point. Somebody comes out and they're like, if you have a ticket for 2.30 or 3, uh, we're going to move you up. So come on out. So I'd been in line for at least an hour, hour, 15 minutes. We're talking to this guy behind us in line because we're all horror fans. So we all have, you know, common interests. So it's easy to strike up a conversation. Sure, sure. Um, so I'm like, oh, we got we got 2.30 tickets. Uh, so after walking out, the guy who I'd been talking to, he'd been standing in line for me for an hour and 15 minutes, um, says, oh, you have to have a ticket to be in this line? Oh, man. That's sad. So I felt bad for that dude because he probably just wasted half of his day. Oh. Um, so we get in line uh, to meet Robert England, and there's a what's great is there was a dude, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 people in front of us in line who was dressed up like 
full Freddy gear, like outside of Robert England himself, this was probably the best looking Freddy I've ever seen. Wow. Okay. Nice. <laughs> uh, when he gets up there, Robert England uh, challenges him to a Freddy laugh off. Oh, yes. Cool. So they both do the Freddy laugh. And, you know, obviously Robert England's going to win the Freddy laugh off. But this dude was really close. Was he? Wow. Like he would beat anybody else. That's pretty impressive. Nice. And you said he did, you were telling me that he did the big loud Freddy laugh, right? And it was like right on the money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. So like the, the really boisterous one. Yeah. It's the Freddy laugh. I know. I love that. That's cool. <laughs> so um, it sounds like he has a good personality then. Yeah. Well, he was, he was, yeah, he was, took some time um, with some autographs. Like here's a little thing that I learned uh, we could have talked about when we talked about New Nightmare, actually, because people bring him, you know, odd, they try to bring him odd things to sign sometimes. Yeah. Um, so someone bought this big giant poster and it was, uh, it was an Italian uh, like subway poster for, Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. Hmm. So yeah. Robert starts to sign it, and he's he knows like everything Kruger. So he's like, oh yes, this is what they used in, in these towns in Italy. And he's like, uh, you see the way that the 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 claw, uh, the the glove is in on this poster. It doesn't actually match what was in the first movie, but the people who designed the claw for the new Nightmare movie had seen this poster and designed the the claw love for new nightmare based on this poster. Oh, wow. So I learned a little bit of Freddy Krueger history from that. And like probably nobody else knows that, right? Except for those designers. And now Robert England, who else would know, you know? Well, of course, but yeah, now, now the thanks to you, Ron Martin, the horror movie podcast community is aware of this, this priceless trivia. That's right. Robert England does not know what he got himself into. Yeah, that's cool. Now, now everybody knows. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, unfortunately for me, uh, right before it was our turn to get our autograph, he was debuting a new movie at this convention, mm -hmm. and it was like an hour after I got up to to meet him, and um, he knew he was crushed for time, and he wasn't he wasn't going to get the sign for everyone in line, so he kind of started a little less chatter, a little more signing. Oh, okay. Uh, after that, but I. When I gave him my poster, uh, it was signed by, you know, almost everybody else. There was not a lot of space left, but they did leave him that space up um, by his head. And he, I did get the line. Um, uh, Thanks for leaving me some space. Oh, and he said it in a Freddy voice. <laughs> and he, well, he's being sarcastic. Yeah. And I just think whenever Robert England is sarcastic, it sounds like Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. That's cool. So he signed that's the my, poster. Yep. That's that's basically my only uh, interaction with uh, Robert England, other than uh, watching him come out of a restroom and scare the crap out of a little kid. Oh, well, no, he wasn't decked out, right? He was just in regular. No, he doesn't do the he doesn't do the Freddie Mac. I, I, don't, I don't know if anyone brings like other movies he's been in yeah. for him to sign. Because if you're going to meet Robert England, you, even if you like another movie better, um, you're going to have him sign as Freddy Krueger. Well, of course. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I'd have him sign as Buck who likes to, <laughs> right. <laughs> From eating alive. <laughs> there you go. I always think of, I always think of him as that character too, though. Okay. Oh, here's, here's another little, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise trivia that I learned. 
tell it. Because I don't know the guy's name, but let me let me look it up here real quick. All right. So the movie is Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Not the best movie in the franchise, but. <laughs> no, but, but that's a dream child of a movie. <laughs> right? Okay. Oh, he's not here. He's not on uh, the Wikipedia page. Was it, look at the IMD. was it the Freddy baby? Uh, did you get to meet the no, Freddy baby? The guy played, it was the guy who played Super Freddy. Oh, okay. I believe that was part five, right? Yes, it is. I'm not seeing him. Here he is. Michael Bailey Smith is the guy's name. Super oh. nice dude. Uh, but so tall that when I got my picture taken with him, you can barely see my head because he's so tall. To get him and me both in the same frame. And I'm not very tall. I'm only like 5'8". So. Wow. So I didn't realize you got to see him too because, yeah, he's like Pluto in The Hills Have Eyes, right? Like the, And, yeah. and he's also Papa Hades in the second Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, he's like. Yeah, and he was j- also in uh, a couple of Buffett Vampire Slayer episodes. Wasn't he also in Monster Man? Yeah, he's Monster Man as well. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know that. It's not a great horror movie, but I still kind of dig it quite a bit. <laughs> he's in that. But yeah, he's a giant dude. So, like, I mean, how big are we talking? Oh, he's. Uh, I'm 5'8, so he's probably every bit of 6'5, 6'6. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's why he's super Freddy. <laughs> yeah, the, see, I didn't, I didn't even realize that when, when I saw, you know, when I just watched the Dream Child recently here, I thought that, uh, that that was kind of like CGI, you know, that body, but it was actually this guy's body. Nope. Uh, yeah, it's this dude, uh, and and his story is very similar to actually to Johnny Depp's story. He went with a friend. Uh, it's his. He was in California. He went with a friend. Uh, who was trying out for Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. Uh, he wasn't an actor. He wasn't trying out. He just went in there, was hanging out. And then uh, they saw him and, and contacted him. I was like, hey, we need a really big dude to play Super Freddy. Are you interested? So I guess, you know, if somebody tells you that, you're going to say yes. Well, yeah. Um, so here's another little snippet for you. Not only did he not try for the part, but got the Super Freddy part. When they were filming the... Uh, the very beginning of that movie during the credits when Alice and her boyfriend are supposedly mm-hmm. uh, getting it on to make the Freddy baby. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't actually her boyfriend. Uh, Michael Bailey Smith also was the body double for that guy. So he's the guy making out with and supposedly, you know, hitting it up with that lady uh-huh. in the opening credits, which unfortunately for him. And I asked, uh, if it was Lisa Wilcox, because she's a very attractive lady. Yes. Unfortunately for him, it was not Lisa Wilcox. Two oh. body devils. And my, and the guy who played Super Freddy is the dude in the opening credits for Nightmare on Elm Street 5, straight from Super <laughs> Freddy's mouth. Oh, man, that's cool. See, I love little trivia like that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, this- and when I met mm-hmm. uh, Lisa Wilcox, who I was really excited to meet, because as I said in the, the new Nightmare review we did on the podcast, uh, I really believe Alice to be the actual protagonist in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Yeah. Uh, well, if, if anyone ever meets Lisa Wilcox, she really likes that when you say that to her. Oh, okay. Did she give you the uh, the D. Wallace treatment? Uh, unfortunately, she for, did not. For saying that? <laughs> okay. Because I believe that I was keeping her from eating her lunch. Oh. Autograph, which, is, which always sucks. But Man, that's hard. I don't know how... Okay, see, I admire you for for doing it. I, I I don't know how you get by the awkwardness because like it's not like you're doing anything wrong or anything weird, right? I mean, you're not. Uh, you actually 
from the stories you told me, except for your story with uh, Danielle Harris. Almost yes, that, kicking, that was embarrassing. <laughs> kicking her out of the convention. <laughs> 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 or trying to. Except for that, I mean, it sounds like you handle yourself really well, you know, with these celebrities. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty outgoing, and I usually have something in my head to say to them before before I get up there. I see. But sometimes, like uh, when I met uh, Kim Myers, who plays the female lead in part two, mm-hmm. uh, like I was walking to her to get her autograph on the on the poster, and she had just put up a plate of food for her to eat because she was in a slow period. Oh, okay. And I was like, you just like, hey, I'll come back later. It's not a big deal. Eat your lunch. But then she insisted that, you know, that I um, I come I come there and speak with her uh, at that moment because they're, you know, they're there to, to for the fans as well to make money. Let's be honest. And but also uh, they like meeting the fans for the majority. The most of them like meeting the fans. Well, yeah. Well, and even even more so. I mean, the fact that you said that you were like, hey, it's cool. I can see you're going to eat. I'll come back like that she probably really respected that and was like, well, this guy is a just a, a honey of a man, just <laughs> a sweetheart. Well, thought, like Lisa Wilcox, uh, she's aged well. Oh yeah, yeah. Her IMDb photo looks pretty good. So nice. So, um, also, what I thought was interesting was that all the people that I met, um, uh, Mark Patton, the, the lead role in the second movie. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, he was the only one that was allowed to wear the Freddy glove other than Robert England. Really? That's interesting. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's like a rule. Right. Cause he's the only one who did because obviously he wore the glove a couple times in part two. Yeah. Yeah. It fits with the, the lore of the franchise. So yeah. Did what, what did he have to say? Was he, he any, anything noteworthy? Um, actually, and he didn't say this to me, but we, we reported on it on our podcast a little bit ago. He is, uh, in the middle of filming a documentary about Nightmare on Elm Street 2 uh, and how it's because he's a homosexual male. The uh, director of that movie was a homosexual male. The movie had very obvious homosexual overtones. Right. And they're making a documentary about uh, how Nightmare on Elm Street 2 became uh, a, the, the, the gay horror movie for the gay community. So he had a lot of people uh, go over into a camera because I guess they're filming part of the documentary that day uh, and talking into the camera. Unfortunately, I was not was not one of them. But I did get a picture of myself with uh, him holding the Freddy glove to my neck. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Which I didn't even ask for. And maybe he just wanted to slice my neck open. <laughs> right. And maybe you provoked him. <laughs> exactly. I don't remember being, <laughs> being uh, overly provoking. but Yes. Well, you are a um, provocative fellow, I think, when, when uh, the time is right. So... <laughs> all right. So who was your, uh, so of all these cast members then, I mean, it sounds like everybody was pretty nice then. Oh yeah. Usually at these conventions, everybody is either uh, super, super nice or uh worst case scenario for me so far has been uh, you're there at the end of the day, they're kind of over it, but they're still going to sign your stuff and they're going to be polite. Yeah. Those are the, those are the two I've dealt with now as a, as a uh, volunteer at these events. Sometimes you see, them a little grumpier than that but oh i get you okay that was funny is uh, miko hughes whom uh, played heather langham's son in the new nightmare yeah uh, was not this convention but i had met him previously at a convention that i was actually working at and i had come in i actually came into the convention with him before it opened and the girl who was in charge of the volunteers 
uh, you know, looked at me and said, hey, we need you to go over here and do this. And she looked at Miko and said, we need you to go over here and do this. And he was just like, um, well, I'm, I'm Miko Hughes. <laughs> She's like, oh, uh, I'm so sorry. So she was like commanding him around like he was just right. a volunteer. I mean, he looks exactly like he looked in the movie. Right. Only like he's like 5'5 five five now. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, and, and you had a similar experience yourself with Daniel Harris, right? Yeah, she's not in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Correct, correct. But but I always love that story because, <laughs> you know, poor Ron Martin. I mean, yeah, how are well, you to know? Well, I was working the door, meaning I'm watching people come in, make sure they got the wristbands on, you know, being the muscle, so to speak. Of course, that's what they would cast you as. <laughs> and unfortunately for me, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't watch remakes, so I didn't see any of the Halloween remakes. Uh, and my only exposure to Daniel Harris at that point, I've seen her in many movies since then. This is like four or five years ago. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, my only experience with Daniel Harris before that point was in Halloween five and, and, and four. Right. Right. When she's younger. When she's a tiny little girl. Yeah. And in my defense, she's supposed to have, you know, a uh, lanyard on. Stating she's a guest, she did not coming out of the green room and tried to go by me. But me being the the bodyguard, so to speak, the muscle, uh, you're not getting by me without the proper credentials. Um, so I tell her nicely, "Hey, you gotta have you gotta have you know a wristband on to get past this area." <laughs> so when she politely, to her credit, she wasn't mad. She politely just said, uh, "Yeah, I'm Danielle Harris." Yeah, you better recognize. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh. So I back off and I said, "Yeah, okay. Well, then I guess you can go right ahead, can't you?" Oh man, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm sorry that I mean I'm, I always feel bad for you that that happened because you were just there trying to help out, trying yeah, to like make a big goof. Like I don't know who one of the main horror stars is. I know, but you're just trying to make sure the riffraff didn't like slip by. Exactly, and she's a very, very small, unassuming lady. So, oh well. I did not make the same mistake with Kane Hodder or Tony Todd. Well, I would hope not. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, Kane Hodder would probably not. That probably wouldn't go over very well with him. I did have to interrupt Kane Hodder during his uh, dinner one night, and that was not pleasant. <laughs> Why did you have to interrupt him? Uh, well, the the same same convention that I, the Miko Hughes convention, the, the late the person who was actually the head of the volunteers was actually the girl I was dating at the time. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, so I had a pretty, you know, a, a, fa- a fairly easy, a, a fairly good job. I didn't have to look, work the door the whole time. Like I was running around getting getting stuff for the celebrities, for the for the <laughs> vendors. Um, you won't believe how many celebrities uh, guests are ecstatic when you tell them that cigarettes are only five dollars a pack in Indiana. Oh, really? Here's a fifty. Get me as many as you can. Wow, that's pretty funny. Okay. Um, so at some point okay, there's a green room and there's a bunch of food for the guests and the staff uh, to eat and uh, Kane Hodder was having his dinner started to get a line at his table so my girlfriend at the time being the leader of the volunteers that she was you know, hits me up on the old walkie talkie and it's like hey where's Kane? I'm like well, I believe that he's eating uh, can you find out when he's going to be done so I can tell these people so they're not just sitting here at the, at the, at the table. Brother I would have made something up I would have just well, said, I, I, uh, I said 20 minutes. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that fast on my feet. Oh, I see. Okay. I was like, yeah, I don't want to interrupt 
Kane while he's eating. I don't know if you know this. He's a really big dude. Uh, yeah, and and uh, by all accounts, kind of pissy, right? <laughs> like, can be, can be. Yeah, sometimes, okay. Uh, so she goes, well, you tell him that I ask. He's not going to do anything to you. <laughs> like cut off your head. <laughs> yeah, so at this point, I'm like, okay, so either piss off Kane Hodder or piss off my girlfriend. Don't have to see Kane Hodder again until after tomorrow. Right. Brother, so, you know, I understand. Sneakily like, walking up to the to the cafeteria area that or the little area that we're eating. Uh, Kane's there with his brother. They're having a conversation. I'm like, um, excuse me, excuse me, Miss Mr. Hodder. Um, apparently, there's a large line at your table, uh, and so and so would like to know when a, a rough estimate of when you might be back out there. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even look at me. He just goes half an hour. Okay. So I say, get on the walkie talkie half an hour. If you got a problem with that, you're going to have to talk to him yourself. Right. Right. I gotcha. I have another Kane Hodder story about a different convention. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's no nightmare on Elm street, uh, connection. That, that's fine. No problem. Uh, but there's a convention about five or six hours away from me and it's half paranormal, half horror. Um, so the people, if you've ever seen the show, uh, ghost hunters international, on the Sci-Fi Network, it's not around anymore, but it was around for about five years. I know of it, but I haven't watched it. Right, I was, I would, the website I used to write for, I was writing reviews weekly uh, of that show, and the, the cast of the show would read my reviews regularly because they were just a new show, and they were just reading what people thought. And you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good writer. I'm a clever guy. Yes, you um, are. So they found my stuff uh, funny and interesting. So I. I forged a relationship with many of the cast members and some of them were going to be at this convention uh, about five hours away from me. So I drove down there to hang out with them for the day. Right. So this is a weird story because me and this other girl that was there for the same reason to hang out with a couple of those cast members. Uh, we were there and a, a guy named um, Rob Damaris, he was the head investigator on uh, ghost hunters international. Mm-hmm. He's like, Hey, this is, this is my hotel room. Guys come up and hang out for a little bit and we'll we'll get you into the VIP party later. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> um, so I get in the elevator with this girl. Uh, I don't know. That's nowhere through that day or whatever, uh, to go to this hotel room that in the area that all the, the guests are staying because conventions pay for the guests to stay in their rooms. So on the elevator with me gets no lie, Kane Hodder and his brother, his brother also a very large dude. Right. And Danny Trejo. Oh, no. <laughs> and Danny Trejo scares the piss out of me. Is that like the scariest moment of your life when you're stuck in the <laughs> the elevator with those three monsters? <laughs> like <laughs> Almost, because here's what happens. <laughs> Kane Hodder's brother has a fart machine. Oh, my God. I knew this. I knew this from working with previous conventions with him because Kane usually brings his brother and his brother has the fart machine. They both think it's hilarious. Oh, okay. So, so it's me. These are very sophisticated individuals we're talking about. Right. Me, this girl, Kane Hodder, Kane Hodder's brother, Danny Trejo. <laughs> so Kane Hodder's brother keeps pushing this fart machine. It's making fart sounds. Right. And Danny Trejo is getting pissed off. <laughs> and he's looking around trying to find out, like, who's passing gas in the elevator. And he wants to stab somebody in the neck. Oh, he definitely <laughs> wants to stab somebody <laughs> in the neck. Danny Trejo, who is a former convict, right? I mean, he is a, uh, that's my understanding that he actually. Yes, did, like a legit badass. Yeah, he did a stint. Like, like. 
So he looks back at uh, me and this girl that I'm with, and then he just says, <laughs> Meanwhile, you can't out the Hotter Brothers because... Right. They're over there in the corner cracking up. And they're freaking giants. Like, you can't be like, it's these guys, so you can't, like, point to them, right? Exactly. Okay, so one more time. I'm sorry, I messed it up. So so what did he say? <laughs> he, looks, he looks back at us, not the Hotter Brothers, and he says, uh, I don't know who's doing that, but it's rude, and you should stop. <laughs> So you got a manners lesson, an etiquette lesson from Danny Trejo, of all people. <laughs> True story. The guy who did time in San Quentin. I love it. I, I Luckily lo- for us, he got off the elevator within the next uh, couple of floors. I love it when um, San Quentin con- convicts give me, <laughs> give me etiquette <laughs> lessons. <laughs> oh, He was imprisoned for armed robbery and drug offenses, it says. But he <laughs> successfully completed a 12-step rehab, so that's good. And obviously, he um, knows a thing or two about good manners, Ron Martin. Exactly. <laughs> These kind of things happen when you're in a convention. Man, you crack me up. That is excellent. I love your convention stories. That's one of my favorite parts about um, coming on to Zombie 7 and listening to your podcast, because every once in a while, you'll tell these funny stories and... I just hope the listeners out there will, if they haven't already, check out the Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast. You can find it at zombie7.com. It's hilarious. And one of the funniest parts is the interplay, the the rapport and the repartee that occurs between Ron Martin here and his co-host, Little Miss Horner, Jessica, who is freaking hilarious. <laughs> and these two are like fighting and having spats and Ron's making fun of her and she's a good sport about it. Yeah. 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 She's awesome about it. And, and, um, you know, she swears at you and uh, it just, it cracks me up. It's actually quite funny and I hope people will give it a listen because I I love it. So you know who who one of her best friends was in high school? One of Jessica's best friends. Yeah. Oh, who the, the girl, I can't remember her name right now. Heather something from, uh, Blair witch project. Oh, really? So she actually knows her? Oh, yeah. They were running buddies in high school. Heather Donahue, then. Yeah. We tried to get her on the show, and she said no. She's the one She the one talking about horror stuff. Oh, really? That's interesting. Even though they're good buddies, she, would, she wouldn't come on for her good buddy? <laughs> I mean, she lives in California now, so I don't know when the last time they spoke was, but apparently they were friends in high school, and she, yeah, she didn't want to come on the show. Oh, wow. Well, still, that was, that was cool. Yeah. Jessica's cousin uh, was one of the first guys on Jackass. Oh, really? Also, more sophisticated people. We're talking exactly. About. <laughs> I'm from a long line of them. I love it. Well, Ron, you've been very generous with your time tonight. I appreciate it. I mean, it's like one one forty a.m. your time right now. So we're grateful for you and for your stories. And um, where can the listeners catch up with you and, and follow you on social media and all those places? What are your plugs? Uh, Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast is my podcast. Uh, Zombie7.com is our website. We focus on horror movie franchises. Uh, one movie at a time, no matter how bad the movie is, we'll give it an hour, hour and a half uh, of detailed criticism. Yes. And you can like us on uh, Facebook, Resurrection of Zombie 7 podcast on Facebook. Uh, subscribe on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter at ResZombie7 on Twitter. Which uh, Jessica runs because I'm too old 
to understand what Twitter is. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even though she's older than me, but still. Me too. They make fun of me, brother, saying that I'm not very good at Twitter. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> I'm busy editing and posting podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, thanks for being here. We really appreciate you. And um, we'll catch up with you soon, buddy. All right, man. I'm glad I could get on for once. I don't have a lot of Wednesdays available, so. I'm grateful. And uh, thanks again for your time. I hope you have a good night, sir. Good night, buddy. Take care. Good night.